0: Hello my friends, a welcome to another Chit Chats with Cats. and I didn't keep track of what number we're up to, but it's about a number 30 or something, and it's getting easier. I'm not getting freaked out with the whole live to air thing, um, which is great because if you've watched any of these, you may have seen that I was pretty bad at this to start off with, and oh, what was that? I just hit the wrong button, but that's okay. That's okay. We hit the right button and get me back. That's because the internet is in front of me, and I don't want that on. See, life to wear. That's what happens. I'm not freaked out. Turn the internet off on your MacBook. But as usual, no bad days. Got my coffee, and um, ding dong. Who's at my door? None other than Mr. Brett said. Hey, Brett, how you doing? Hey, very good. That's good, mate. Thanks for coming along.
1: Oh, my pleasure. I've travelled so far.
0: <laughs> <laughs> From the uh, the comfort of your – is this your, your man cave where you are now?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's the, uh, we built this house about eight years ago, and I took over the two-car garage that normally comes with it. So now it's a. It's a, uh, my excuse for a studio.
0: Nice one, nice one. Well, this is actually my lounge room that you can see here. Uh, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, yeah. I've got a little lounge chair there, and I don't actually own a TV. I've got my big iMac that I – watch netflix and youtube and all that kind of thing on yeah. um it's just the way it is these days i like to work work from home so love it fantastic brett i'm gonna ask you what i ask everybody to start off and that is what began the love affair with the guitar for you how did that all start
1: um i don't know if you can see it i'll, I'll try and angle my camera there's a red guitar about there i don't know if anyone can see that yeah yep, yep uh that guitar was owned by my older brother john uh, and he was 10 years older than me we lost him to cancer in about 2009 unfortunately or uh 2000 and, uh no 2002 what am i saying yeah 2002 and uh uh yeah john had that guitar under the bed it's an old Maton guitar it's like a max max one or something like that okay. by maintenance so, yeah um and uh it, I, he, he was quite a good player but i uh, he had to uh give it up and focus on running the farm after my father passed away from cancer so and um uh so the guitar just sat idle under the bed and i'd get it out and look at it and um there was a guitar cable in the case and I remember I'd ask him about it, and I'd say, what's up with this? And he said, it's an electric guitar. And I thought, brilliant. So I went around looking for a PowerPoint to plug it into, and that didn't work, and thank God. And uh, <laughs> tried plugging it into the headphone jack on the stereo because it fit, but that didn't work. And yeah. But I'd still I'd still get it out, and I'd muck about with it. And and uh, my brother-in-law, Greg, would actually play it sometimes, so it was always in tune, so at least there was that. And And my brother's chord book was in there which just had chord diagrams and i think it was greg that showed me how to read those and he said yeah look here's the strings here's the low high Uh, if there's an x above it don't play that string if there's an o you play it open and if there's a number on the string that's where you put your finger on the fret you know and i thought well seems pretty straightforward so um and i i did so i remember discovering that if you held your finger on the high string and hit it and moved your finger up the notes went up Cool. And then they went back down again, which was an, a revelation. And, um, and then I, there was a song by Status Quo called Pictures of Matchstick Men. I don't know if anyone remembers that because it's long before they became the, the sort of the band we knew them to be. It was when they were a bit psychedelic back in the 60s. And my brother had that single. And I remember listening to it. Going, had a guitar intro that was just pretty much played on the high E string. And I thought, honestly, how hard could it be? You know? And I just kept poking around until I found the right note. And... And I just sat there and worked it out, and uh, cool. that was the first thing I ever well, transcribed, I suppose you'd say. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I suppose it, it sort of showed me that I had a good ear, like I had a good ear and a good understanding for how music sort of functioned. Um, I even made up a little song just using the open strings, which had a four-bar structure and and uh, it had it had a it had harmony to it, like it was. Certainly wasn't any work of genius, but it just showed that there was an aptitude there that, that I connected with and uh, and with the instrument. And uh, so I ended up taking some lessons off a guy here in the, the very town I'm living in, Castlemaine, named Jeff Lyons. And Jeff was a local legend for good reason. He was the only guy in town that could, uh, or that anyone even knew of, that could play I'm Going Home by 10 years after. Okay. And, uh, so, yeah, Jeff was quite the gun. And um, he taught taught me sort of... The first song he taught me was Seasons of Change," Changes by uh, Blackfeather, I think. Seasons of Change," I think that's the song. Just sort of the intro and then some chords and then a boogie-woogie bass line and a uh, couple of other things. And, and, uh, and then I sort of gave it up for a while, lost interest in it. And then uh, my cousin Andrew came up to visit one day and we were poking around in the bedroom and he looked under the bed and found the guitar and you've got a guitar you know and i said oh no i not only have i got a guitar i can play it mate so i got it out and <laughs> played my four lessons for him and luckily for me he was just full of inspiration and said that's it we're forming a band so uh, cool. cool so uh, yeah he was the guy andrew was the guy that got the whole ball rolling and what and, what um, age
0: was that that you started playing that you put together your little band about 12 about 12 yeah yeah andrew was Andrew
1: was older. There was Andrew, my other cousin, Neil, and our friend, Ken. Ken and Andrew were the eldest. They were about 17. I think Neil was about 15, and I was probably about 13 when we did our first gig right here in Castlemaine at the Railway Hotel.
2: Cool. So, cool. Hysterically
1: funny times.
0: Yeah. yeah. And Great and fun. Do you remember what, what songs you played at your first gig? Oh, I remember vividly, yeah. Yeah?
1: yeah. Uh, massive amounts of deep purple led zeppelin Jimi hendrix we just we just learned what we had which which is what we liked we had no idea that no one else was listening to this at all like we we had physical graffiti and you know the first uh, like the second zeppelin album with a little love on it and uh we had uh made in japan and uh uh I had, my brother had the isle of white album uh, with hendrix and uh and, um, yeah, we just learned whatever all the cream's clear water stuff we could get our hands on, like anything that we us or our family members were listening to. oh, I was really lucky. My brother was just such a fan of guitar oriented music, so he had Santana, Pink Floyd, zeppelin purple, you name it, you know, he had it, and uh, and so that's what we played. and it was especially years in a couple of years when disco really hit it was just it was just we suffered you know really no one no one liked us at all like we play you know They wanted to hear the bg's you know sure. nothing against the bg's i love the bg's but we just couldn't play it you yeah. know because we didn't have a keyboard player and and uh yeah i remember we, we used to play in this in this pub at a town called dalesford just up the road and uh and um it was just the yeah, same old story, usually playing to almost empty rooms. Everyone hated us, and but we'd suffer <laughs> through it. And uh, and these four or five guys came in one night, and we knew they weren't locals because we'd never seen them before, and they sat down on the table, and we thought, oh, God, here we go. And we were playing we were playing really obscure stuff. We played the instrumental that Jimi Hendrix closed Woodstock with. Oh, this really? Beautiful, yeah, this beautiful ballad. Because we, we played Purple Haze, and that was the version we did. And we played that instrumental because we just lo- – I loved it and I learned it, it was as best I could. Mm-hmm. And it was the closest thing we had to a ballad. And, uh, and I remember we started pl- – we played all the Richie Blackmore's Rainbow stuff because I just loved – Blackmore was the reason I even wanted to play. Really? And so we played all the Rainbow stuff we could, we could learn. And, and these four guys are sitting there at this table and they just, <laughs> they just started looking at us like, oh, my God. <sighs> They knew everything we played. They were they were roaring. They were the, the greatest crowd we ever played for in cool, our lives. Cool, Yeah, they come up to us afterwards and said we've never heard anyone play this music before. And we said we've never seen anyone like this music before, other than us. And uh, yeah, it was it was a treat. So.
0: And do you remember what type of gear you were using then? Was,
1: was it... oh yeah
2: yeah
0: yeah. Well, uh, the first that red guitar. Andrew
1: ended up buying the red guitar because I wanted the guitar with the whammy bar on it because Richie had a whammy bar you gotta gotta go to the strat but we mm-hmm. couldn't afford the strat so i bought a, a guitar called a sakai or s-a-k-a-i i mm. remember talking to brett kingman and brett had one as well and uh they were just back in the days when they, those great japanese instruments that were not good you know
2: yeah yeah
1: i remember i bought it and i brought it home it did have a whammy bar that kind of bolted onto it which eventually i just broke off, <laughs> broke off. But I remember at the 14th fret, it didn't make any sound at all. All the strings just fretted out yeah, and buzzed. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: And I thought, all guitars are probably like that. You probably just avoid that general area. So, you know, we'll just won't go into that. And and uh, I didn't realise later on, you could actually fix that. But, uh, but um, yeah, so then I think I got a, a Strat copy of some kind and pleaded with my mother eventually to... To, will you buy me a Strat? I think I was about, I think I was about thirteen or fourteen at this time, and I was, I was addicted to the guitar. I'd never, nothing had ever really captured me like this, like the guitar and music. It's just all I ever thought about. And um, uh, the poor thing, she relented. And I'll, I'll go grab it. Hang on.
0: Okay. Let's have a look around his room while he's doing that. Can we see? Here we go live it's
1: brilliant isn't it you know.
0: yeah yeah i always um, end up grabbing a guitar during it some somehow myself
1: but um yeah she bought me this so
0: oh look at that
1: yeah look look at that yeah it was in pretty good nick when i got it but uh i soon fixed that
0: yeah so. yeah so what but, year is that
1: well it's it, almost nothing on it is original other than the body and i think the volume and tone knobs but um it's uh, – I think it's like a early – like a mid-70s type thing or 74, 75. Okay. And I, I've since put a different neck. This is actually – I got this neck when I was in the States, and um, I, think it's, I think it was actually made by John Sir, to be honest. Oh, nice one. Yeah, I think it was – I could be wrong, but I think it was when he was still working at Fender and he was doing some blank necks, and I got one for my strat and one for the telly. And uh, just a big slab of maple, but yeah, but uh, Mum paid about six hundred and fifty bucks for that. Wow! Which in, you know, we figured that out, and it's a, <laughs> it'd probably like buying a custom shop strat, you know. So it was a massive investment for her. She was a a widower on a, a widow on a farm, you know, and uh, with a sixteen year old eldest son running the joint, and me who wants a strat. <laughs> And I remember this little chubby kid would go waddling into the pubs here in town, and people would just lose their minds. I think it was one of two Fender Strats in Castlemaine. And uh, wow. my mate Glenn Quill, uh, who was another instrumental figure in my life, Quilly had the other one. And I know he's still got it, too. Uh, his would be in showroom condition, I'm sure. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Quilly always looked after his gear.
0: I'd, I'd personally love to find myself a, a 73 Strat because that's the year I was born. Uh, I don't think they're particularly known for being that good around that time, but uh, just just for the yeah, just
1: yeah, it was uh, yeah, mine's a it's a CBS one, you know. I had the three bolt neck and uh, the big headstock, which suited me fine because it looked like the it looked like the one Richie was playing on the machine head inner sleeve, the sunburst strap with the maple neck, yeah, and uh, you know, but I remember, yeah, I had a, a Jade Clubman amplifier okay 80 80 watts andrew bought all his stuff because he was the only guy that had a job and uh and um before that i had a five watt coronet amplifier and it's fantastic to think back about how acme all the gear was back then because now the stuff that you can actually begin with is really good gear and it's cheap you it's you know you can you can buy a beginner guitar that you could can continue to use for an entire career and uh and the same with an amp, you know, and it won't break the bank at all. Like a, the family could set up their kids with great gear that'll, they could make some really good music on. But back then, you were either playing something good or you're playing something absolute rubbish. And uh, and a, I had the beautiful guitar, but still had this this amp. And um, I think they're an Australian amp, Jade.
0: They are, they are, yeah.
1: And it was brilliant. Like it had a distortion knob on it, and um, which you could switch on, you know. And we we so we switched it on immediately and turned it flat out. And it had about as much gain as, oh, I don't know, you know, like a, a distortion pedal with about 10 seconds left in the battery, you yeah. know, like it was just, it was so lame. But, uh, but you know, I just learned to learn to play on that. And uh, then eventually, um, Ken, the drummer, uh, had a friend who was giving away all his gear and he gave him an old wah fuzz pedal, which is still up the back there. Oh, nice. In. And doesn't work anymore. I've I've had people look at it, but they said, you know, "Who knows what any of this stuff is? We wouldn't know. How would you know what the circuits are?" And,
2: yeah, yeah.
1: So but you, yeah, the first the first time I plugged that fuzz in, that was life changing because then I had sustain. So nice, uh, nice. Yeah, that was that was a big big game changer.
0: Okay. So you you said you played to the four four guys uh, in, in the pub in Castlemaine. Um, was that through the the Jade amplifier, or did you have something bigger by then? No, nah, that was the Jade. That was the yeah. Jade. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was many years later I got, I got a marshal. Um, and, wow, that was when I started working. I, I left school at about 14, 15 and, and got a plumbing apprenticeship. Oh, cool. It's just what people did around here. We just – all us young guys went and got apprenticeships. We all became mechanics, fitters and turners, yep. you know, whatever. I actually wanted to be a welder. I wanted to be a boilermaker because but, uh, but, um, I really liked welding. But um, that division of the big factory – that I was going to go and do that in sh- shut down. So then the plumbing apprenticeship I got was in the same factory. I drive past it whenever I go to Melbourne. So.
0: Oh, nice, nice.
1: Yeah, it's great. I, I love driving past it and not going into it. Yeah. You
0: know? <laughs> and thinking, well, what could have been, huh, if I didn't go oh, down this uh, way?
1: yeah. yeah you, you don't want to get a gold watch from that place. No, that. not
0: at all. So um, you mentioned Blackmore as a, a bit of a, an influence. And i got to say, a lot of the – Fans that you rattled off, then my friends who have older brothers are uh, into all that, the Led Zepp, the, the Deep Purple, and everything. So yeah, yeah. I'm going to be the first to admit I don't know too much uh, in the way of the Blackmore and stuff. But do you think that was a very big influence on you trying to get the whole Speedy? Rich-
1: well, Richie was
0: everything. You I was, mean, yep.
1: he was he was it wasn't even like an influence; it was like a religion. You know. Like uh-huh. I remember it very vividly. I couldn't have been any more than about 11, and we were having a, just a bit of a family get together uh, at the farm, and all the brother-in-laws and everything, sisters were all there, and, and uh, my brother, other brother-in-law Rob, had put on an album, and I just I looked at my brother John and I said, "What? What's this?" And he said, "This is Deep Purple." He said, "They're the loudest band in the world." And the the album was uh, in rock, so the song that came on was Speed King. And, I mean, it's just nothing but – it's the closest thing you'll find to just progressive rock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just pirate, Guitar Pyrotechnics 101. I mean, I just went – I went, oh, you know, as the minute he said they were the loudest band in the world, I thought, yeah, they sound like it. Yeah. And uh, And I thought, this is brilliant. And then, of course, once he – that's when I thought this is what electric guitars sound like. I just expected to plug that Maiden in and have that come out of it because it was just built into it. But I didn't realise I had to make it do it. But um, yeah, I, that that was the first album. I once I had saved up enough money, that was the first album I ever bought. And uh, and just everything I heard from Richie from that point on just astonished me. Like I just thought I've never heard anyone get noises like this out of a guitar and when i would started to listen to other guitar players and i'd say this guy just stands alone and he really does like i mean i mean the more you go back and listen to what blackmore was doing back then uh he is he is the bridging gap between the really primitive 70s guitar players and that leap into the late seventies with your Van Halen's and people like him and Brian May and uh, Jeff Beck would, they were this technical bridge of, of just that led us to the, to the, the innovation of, of technique. And now when you see it where it's gone now with like Guthrie Govan and, and uh, Andre Neary and people like that, Like, they're just doing things, I I often, my standard quote is, I feel like I'm watching The Matrix, like, it's, uh, I feel like it's CGI, they're so damn incredible, I just think that can't be possible, can it? Yeah, But but they're doing it, you know, and, uh, yeah, it's this, Blackmore's part of that, you know. Like, you listen to the, you listen to the Highway Star solo, and that picking section in the middle is just, you know, that's, that. That created Yngwie and Paul Gilbert and all those guys, whether they know it or not. Sure, I, mean, I don't know. Sure, I know Paul was. A, I know Yngwie was a Black North fan, yeah. but I don't know if Paul was. But uh, there's a precision there that just was – it had not been seen yet.
0: Sure, so. sure. It's funny you should, you should say that because um, a common thing I ask people, they usually say to me that they start off playing folk music and strumming. And then I'll often say, what, what bridged the gap? What got you from playing – Strumming the chords of the Bob Dylan songs to the sound that you are now. And there always seems to be something. You said Richie Blackmore. Um, two standout moments for me. Um, the second one that happened was my friend played me Eruption by Van Halen. And I was like,
1: that'll do it. Yeah. What the <laughs>
0: hell was that? But the first one was, uh, and this is around 86, and I was a 12 year old kid who was playing. The Shadows and, you know, all the, the surf guitar kind of tunes, because you yeah, could at, at 12, but a standout moment for me. Stuff. It is, it is, and I'm so thankful that I got a grounding in that Yeah. because the touch and the feel, which is everything, yeah. I got a good grounding in that. I know guys who leap straight into trying to learn Randy Rhodes, et cetera, and they don't have that, they can't play one note and just make it sing. And and with a
1: clean tone as well. Exactly. Like no distortion. Like, it's, it's really – you know, I got to meet Hank Marvin, actually. Like, uh, many years ago – I was sorry to derail You're this. Right. I was, many years ago, we were touring with uh, John and uh, Olivia Newton-John and we were playing in Perth, and Hank turned up, and Stuart Fraser and I got to go and get a photo with him and have a chat to him. What, a, what an awesome guy, well, like, just the most beautiful person.
0: He's on my radar. He's kind of one of those guys that's like, okay, keep – Yeah, yeah. and I've been aware that he has lived in Perth for quite a while now. Yeah. yeah. Um, So I might try and get him. I'm not sure how, if he's a private person or not. But I was saying about the Van Halen moment, but what happened before that was watching the TV and John Farnham was doing huge sellout tours around Australia. You were a member of the band at the time. And on came this solo to let me out. And it's funny, you had the big camera hanging off your guitar and everything. Off that guitar. Yeah, that was that guitar. Yeah. And I saw this and just went, what was that? I had no idea that was even possible. Uh, it was it was life changing for me, and I actually just tried to load it into my software. And folks, I just got a new laptop, and I'm running it all off today. I'm going to try and play that clip, uh, Brett. I don't think you're going to be able to see this, so bear with me for the minute and a half as this plays. But I'm going to try and play that right now. Let's see if it works. Brett on the guitar,
2: folks.
0: Oh my God, I saw that as a 12 year old. And as I said, mind blowing. Um, Brett, you couldn't see that then, but I'm sure you're well familiar with it.
1: Yeah, be honest, Rick. It was the, Gar- the Garfield t shirt that, <laughs> that did it for you. That I, didn't even, fashion, such I such didn't even notice it. I didn't even. We've
0: yeah. just had a, a comment from Drew Barrys over in the States. It said, uh, Guthrie, who? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. and my friend uh link has just said eddie van halen eat your heart out so seriously man i saw that and just went what was that like you were legato playing all those harmonic things you were doing well that was all just trying
1: to just trying to follow eddie's lead i mean i i, I think that's what that's what i got from eddie was like you've got a you got a you got a uh, got to be yourself i suppose you know Mm -hmm. and and even though look i was still blatantly copying eddie i was trying to mutate anything i could to at least go somewhere you know to do something a little different rather than just do the the finger tapping thing straight out of eddie's playbook you know and uh and then of course through eddie i heard heard about alan holdsworth and when i heard alan i realized yeah you gotta you've got to be yourself you've got to just Find your thing. And I mean, look, not everyone can find their own thing like Alan. I mean, he was singular like that. That's, that's above anything I ever tried to emulate or steal from Alan technically or anything like that. The thing that just struck me the most was I've never heard anyone like this guy. And throughout the rest of his career, I never, ever did. I mean, Alan just kept evolving on his own. And, and it had nothing to do with anything that was happening around him. Yet there's this incredible... Dave uh, Chappelle quote I think it's Dave Chappelle and mm-hmm. it was um genius is when oh, I hope I can remember it. genius is when everything before you was obsolete and everything after you bears your mark wow and yeah it's an amazing quote It's something like that he, he was referring to Richard Pryor I think so he was obviously referring to another comedian but but Alan sort of hits me that way where well you think of it, Alan is the guy that stopped Eddie in his tracks. Yeah, right. And and Sean Lane. Like I remember having a massive Alan rave with Sean Lane when I was living in the States and yeah. it was great. Sean was the first guy I'd ever met that loved Alan's playing as much as I did and we just had this like I was awestruck enough to just meet Sean, but we had this fantastic just Alan session, you know. Yeah. And Sean said he yeah, he uh he just heard a I think he just read it in the paper, this band called UK was playing in in the park in memphis so he went down to check him out and there's alan standing there doing his thing and wow. sean just said he said that just stopped me right in the middle of what i was doing and i went there you know and yep. uh so when you, you figure like with alan you either it either hit you like that or it didn't
2: uh-huh
1: and um so yeah all those little tricks and everything i mean they're just dumb tricks but
0: how old were you middle, then? I, how old were you uh, when in that 20, picture? 22 i think 23 okay and how old were you when you first started playing with John?
1: Uh twenty-one. The first, the first gig I did with John. Well, when I first met John was uh, the summer of uh, eighty-five. So it was before Whispering Jack. Okay. He was still in Little River Band at the time, and he decided to just do a, a short pub tour, just to you know keep his chops up and have some fun. Yep. And so he put together a band. That uh, it was a great band. It was uh, David Hirschfelder was on keys. Uh, Sam C was also playing guitar. Um, Nicky Nichols uh, was on BVs. Uh, Bruno de Stanislaw was playing bass, and Derek Polici was playing drums. so And I remember it was funny too because I, so, I was so happy Sam was there because I was petrified like I've never played in a – I went straight from our local pub band to John, you know Wow. Thought I can't be the only guitar player. I don't even know how to play a funk rhythm, you know. And and luckily Sam was there. And I thought, oh, thank God, you know, we've got a proper guitar player in the band. And and I, it was so, it was a shame because I just I was so in awe of Sam's ability because especially when I found out he was just as good a keyboard player as he was a guitar player. And he was such a beautiful slide player and all the rest of it. And I I desperately wanted to set and get him aside and ask him questions, but I was just too shy. Yeah. I was Too. Yeah, I was just terribly shy and uh intimidated by the whole thing. It was a miracle I had the courage to do it. But
2: uh
0: So was there an audition process to get the gig with Farnham? Yeah, there was actually. Um
1: because what happened was uh it's a, a bit of a I've gotta sort of wind back a bit. I was always reading Guitar Player magazine. I loved that magazine. It was sort of back when that really was the magazine. Yep. It wasn't Guitar World and Guitar for the Practising, whatever and all the rest mm-hmm. of it, so that was it. And um, Mike Varney started doing the spotlight column. And I was really enjoying reading that, you know, where he'd take three unknowns and they'd send in you know, hundreds of people had send in cassettes and things. And he'd choose three and shove them in the book and give them a bit of a bit of a boost. And um, I was enjoying reading that column and I thought, I've never seen an Australian in here. So I thought, well, what have I got to lose? So I got my girlfriend to take a photo of me in <laughs> front of the house with that guitar. And um, he put me in the book. Like, I think I'm pretty sure I'm the first Aussie to ever get in that book. Oh, really? Cool. In the spotlight. I'm pretty sure I'm the first Australian in the spotlight column because I read them all. Yep. And I'd never seen one in there until I was in it. So I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. But uh, so, yay me. But, uh, <laughs> um, but I thought, oh, great, now I've got a resume. You know, it's like the only real sort of outside opinion of my abilities, such as they were at the time. And I thought, well, what I can do is photocopy this and write letters and do a little demo tape and send that around to a few people and see if anyone's interested in hiring me as a guitar player. Look, my, my bar was set so low, I thought if I could get in a cover band in Melbourne and just work as a guitar player, I'd be happy, you know. That's it, make, make, make a, enough to live on playing the guitar, done, you know. And I sent out about at least a dozen handwritten letters and copied the cassettes and nearly all of them came back because I think most of them ended up going to record companies. So I got the, there's this magazine called Sonics and I remember they do really? like a, yeah, they do a yearbook and they just put in trade addresses, management, uh, booking agencies, record companies. So I just went through the whole thing. And luckily one of the addresses was for the Wheatley organization. And I thought, fair enough. All right. You get a cassette and. I got uh, this beautiful letter I'll never forget. I've still got the letter, was, you know, still here. Yep. And uh, it just, Dear Brett, I just got your tape. Please call me, Glenn Wheatley. And I thought, this is a good one. I go, nice. <laughs> you know, they're either that short saying don't call me or do call me. And so I rang up Glenn and he said, you know, I want to put a band together for John so he can go out and do some gigs, which would be interested? I said, oh, well, let me just check my schedule, you know. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so uh, – yeah, they, they organised for me to go to John's house down in I don't know where he was living down in Melbourne somewhere, Campbellwell or something. And I just went out and knocked on the door, and John answered it. I couldn't believe it, you know. I uh, went in, and Ross Fraser was there, and and they still John's wife Jill still gives me grief about it to this day. I I had this cassette player that I would use as a practice amp. You could just plug your guitar into it and press record, and it would come out the speaker. Nice i had this dodd preamp that i was running through the marshall at the time and um it was only because i was too lazy to bring the marshall back from our rehearsal space
0: you
2: mm-hmm.
1: know and uh so i turn up with this cassette player and the dodd preamp and they she still jill still says yeah you turned up with this cassette player you whacker and, uh, yeah, and, uh, and, um, but they were working on a demo for let me out at the time and uh they said this song's got a bit of a solo break in it you want to take a shot at it and I said sure. So I, uh, I did two takes, and I got really lucky and didn't fluff anything, and they really liked it. Now here's the thing: um, I remember it was in a really strange key, not the key that we did it on the album, and uh, it put the solo in a weird key, like it was in flats, and yep. and, and uh, but I was just mainly an ear wing it by ear guy anyway, so it didn't matter. But uh, um, they asked, Ross said, what would you play in the verses? And I said, oh, I don't know. There's no vocal. And John said, oh, I'll chuck a vocal on for you. So he just grabbed a 58 and stood there in his lounge room. And so here's the thing. That song is in the main part of the song. with The lyrics in it is in F sharp mm-hmm. on the album. I remember distinctly the demo was in A. So it's an upper minor third. Whoa. And he stood there in his lounge room. He's hitting like high Gs, like 15th fret. High E string on a guitar. Jeez. No warm-up, no nothing. Just grabbed a mic and I'm just sitting there watching him and listening to this. Because, see, here's the thing. Like, a long, I don't know how long before this, I've got to try and track the date down. Me and my petrol head mates here from Castlemaine drove all the way to Bathurst to go to the Bathurst 1000, right? Mm-hmm. And if you bought a ticket to the race, you could go to this concert they had there because they just built an amphitheater. And the first gig was lrb cool and so we thought great you know and i was already a fan of john's like i loved uh i loved the net album and i loved uh the uncovered record and i thought man i'd love to know if this guy can hit this stuff live you know because he's a hell of a singer and so we go to this gig and that's when i just i stood there watching him and i realized that he is actually holding back in the studio i thought (laughs) because he obliterated what he did on the albums live. I I was such a fan of heavy rock and metal and all this stuff, and I was always a bit disappointed when I'd hear live recordings and I'd go to gigs and the singers always ducked melodies and hmm. you know held the mic out of the crowd because I ran out of breath. And I thought, this guy's like a superhero. I've never seen anything or heard anything like this. And then he did it for me not that long afterwards. I'm in his house and he did it for me in his lounge room. So Wow. Yeah, it was just – it was unbelievable. Yeah, so, yeah. And I, I, I. Thirty-five years later, I'm still just standing there, going, "I can't believe what I'm hearing." You yeah, know? yeah, amazing.
0: So you did uh, leave for a while, and you went to the states, and you played with Nelson,
2: right? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Did you know in the back of your mind that you'd always come back someday?
2: You
1: know, it's uh, I've talked about this in other interviews, and it's it's hard to talk about because uh, well, it's hard to sort of balance it because if i take the life i had there and and the people i've met and that are in my life now and always will be that are in america then i i wouldn't trade any of it
2: mm-hmm.
1: but if i think about some of the experiences i had there and hindsight being 2020 i look at it and go what was i thinking mm. and then i look at why why would i leave john's band why would i not stay with John and just continue working with the, the guy I believe to be the greatest singer that's ever lived. I mean, you're not wrong. And there. I, you're not wrong I, there. I don't, I don't have an answer for you. I, mm-hmm. I don't even really know. The, the one thing about it is that having done it, it removed all questions. If I, maybe if I hadn't done it, I'd be sitting here going, what if I had done it? Mm-hmm. Uh, well now I know I did it and it, uh, i know what it's like to go to america live as an american and uh tour america and i suppose i got to do it at the last dying gasp of what was the 80s music scene there which was a unique moment and uh and then i got to experience the changing of the guard from one style of rock into the next one and then i kept living i was lived there for 13 years i mean then i got to watch rock not be the thing anymore and have it move into rap and hip-hop you know and r&b and so it was it was a unique experience to be there and live there and i i remember vanetta fields was in john's band and i remember having a conversation with her because other people were in my ear and i was listening to because i was so naive i i was just happy to be playing music i couldn't care less about money or anything like that i didn't make any difference to me i i thought at least i'm not plumbing
2: yeah yeah
1: I don't care if they pay me 10 bucks a week. I'm happy, you know. Yep, yep. And, um And people were always like, we need more money. We should be getting more money. And I thought, okay, that's what professional musicians say. We should get more money. I was so naive. I didn't know. Yep. So I was sitting next to Vanetta on a plane, and I, hey, Vanetta, <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, we should be getting more money. And she just went, excuse me? And uh, I was like, uh, we should be getting more money. And she said, you got to pay some dues before you get some more money, honey. And then she started and like i love an editor this day i'm so honored to call her a friend you know and and she proceeded to uh tell me a few stories about when she was in the Icantina tina turner band and uh a few a, a few stories that that pretty much just left me with my mouth hanging open in shock yeah and uh that are even more poignant in this moment now than they even were back then for me but uh so maybe that's what I had to do too. I paid some, I paid some dues over there. I got to tell you. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah.
0: So it, when it, sorry to cut you off there. When, when you were saying um, about the the audition with with Farnum, well, getting together and him hitting those notes in the lounge room and everything, you knew he, he was a mind blowing singer. Did you think that he would become such a commercial success as he did? Because a lot of my viewers are international. I got to say. I won't get into the figures, but I have a very low viewing audience in Australia. When I mentioned John Farnham, a lot of them aren't aware of him, and I, I encourage you guys to go out and watch him on YouTube or whatever. He really is one of the best singers in the world live. Did you think that it would take off to be such a, a commercial success? Because he was everywhere, late eighties, early nineties. Well, I
1: thought he, I thought it should be because I just, I didn't look at things based on trends or fashion i just looked at what was in front of me and went that's incredible that deserves to be heard that should be huge i remember the very first rehearsal we had with that that initial band that pub band and i was driving a mazda 626 back then and uh john turned up to the same rehearsal in his mazda 626 which was older than mine and more beat up wow and i'm just going what's happening here you know and i remember i Later on, I was telling people I was going to do an album with him because this was in '86 and they were already working on Whispering Jack. And uh, I said, um, "Yeah, I'm doing an album with John Farnham. It's going to be great." And a lot of people I spoke to they said, "Wow, yeah, well, that guy, one of the greatest singers, and if anyone ever deserved it, it's him." But it's over. He's passed. You know, it's gone. Yep. And uh, and. Uh, I never really listened to any of that, but um, but uh, no one believed it. No one believed it. In fact, I would go as far as to say I bet a lot of people would have thought, well, yeah, I'm trying to look at this young act over here. And then, of course, the minute the whole thing exploded, oh, there was there were guitar players calling the gigs saying, yeah, I'm coming down to audition for the guitar player's spot. Really? I'm... Oh, yeah, yeah, there were guys ringing up saying, well, I'm the best guitarist in Australia. These were well-known names. If I dropped the names, you'd know who they are. Wow. Then they wanted to work with John Farnham. Then they, because, oh, so he's hot. Okay, yeah, now I want to work with him. And, uh, you know, much to John's credit, like, I mean, it was an enormous leap of faith to put that much faith in me because I was so young and raw. But you know, he's, he's done nothing but ever, ever, never done anything but believe in me. And I just can't thank him enough for that. You know, he's just always been that guy that just said, be yourself, do your thing, you
0: know? So one thing about Farnham is there's the John Farnham band and that his film clips always feature the band. And He's a solo artist. He could just, Hey, it's all about me, but that's one thing. He's always had his band in there. And he's always featured them. So it sounds like he, He's out to look after you guys and go, hey. That's John. Yeah. That's the guy. You know, that's, the, that's why, uh, you know,
1: what people are like, especially Australians sometimes, they're, mm-hmm. they're just knockers, you know. Mm-hmm. They just like to – they like to just sort of give people a bit of stick just because – and that they never know these people, you mm-hmm. know. They're famous, ah, that guy, you know. Yep. Like, I mean, the amount of just stuff you've got to tolerate. And like, have you ever met the man? You know, if you ever met him, he's like one of the most humble, decent people you'd ever meet. Down to earth, he could be the most arrogant tosser based on just the magnitude of his success. And he's nothing, nothing like that, yep. you know. And it's, uh, yeah, it's an endless source of frustration to me that, uh, that people read him that way. And it's not like, not like that at all. You know, <laughs> John's just an incredibly humble person with just an, a phenomenal talent. I mean, I mean, I don't know. Even, even when we did that big fiery gig earlier in the year and everyone's raving about Adam Lambert, you know, and I'm like, Adam Lambert is a fantastic singer. And, you know, uh, maybe I shouldn't actually just bring up Adam's name because he is a fantastic singer. Yep. I love his yep. voice. But I think it's just the fact that I've had the benefit of standing next to John for the better part of 35 years and hearing him consistently bang out those notes, we don't drop keys. If he doesn't feel like he wants to sing a song anymore, he can't give it the oomph that he needs to give it in the middle of a one and a half, two-hour show, mm. then it's gone. Yep. You know, you don't drop the key. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, you pretty much get the same show out of that guy you got back in 1986. You know, yep. that's amazing. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Just give, give us two seconds. I'm just going to turn the heater on. You're
0: man. right, mate. You you go for it. And when he comes back, I'm going to ask Brett about his time in LA when he did um, split for a little while. He's back now. Sorry, I can't you, hear you. You're right, effort. mate. You're right. I was just saying, I'm, I'm going to ask you about when you did um, depart the camp for a little while and you went over, it was, you went to LA, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Had you already lined up the gig with Nelson or did you go over there and, and sort of think, okay, I'm here, who wants me?
1: No, no, it was lined up. Um, uh, a wonderful fellow named Jeff Shoecraft was managing, co-managing Nelson at the time. And Jeff worked with John in Little River Band management. Okay. And that's how he knew me and the connection there. And, and at the time, John wasn't really doing a lot. He was going to take a bit of a hiatus. And, and uh, I think what sort of – you know, I'd it up with my girlfriend, so I was a bit sort of miserable and, and – uh, and um i was living in melbourne trying to sort of get some other work happening in the interim and just you just can't just jump into a scene and expect people to want to hire you you know and uh so i was sort of struggling a bit and then this offer came up to come to the states and i think i was at the stage where i I just didn't really care too much about myself so i thought okay why not you know jeff said yeah come on over see what you think and so i just went over there and uh and and he gave me a he sort of put me in a <laughs> put me in a room at the Oakwood Apartments. If anyone knows the Oakwood Apartments in uh, in uh, North Hollywood, there, then uh, then you know what I'm talking about. And uh, and he just gave me a cassette player and said, "Here's the demos. They'll be over later. The Savo to pick you up. You know." And and I sat there listening to the demos and went, "Man, these are hits. This is a great. These are great songs. And they really are. I mean, I love those songs and still do." Yep. And Matt and Gunner came over, and uh, they were just great guys, you know, really just normal, down-to-earth guys. And we got together in the afternoon. I met Bobby Rock, the drummer. Bobby's, you know, one of my dearest, oldest friends to this day. I, still, I just spoke to him yesterday. Nice, yeah. and, nice. I uh, met Paul Merkovich, incredible keyboard player, sort of almost the MD for the band. And, yeah, it was we just got on like a house on fire. It was really good fun. Yep. And, uh and it wasn't at all like a, like a really serious audition process or anything. But it ended up just um, Bobby and Matt and Gunner and I just went into SIR Studios and jammed for a few weeks and played the songs and got to know each other and uh, and we just hit it off. Nice. Yeah. And I went I went back later that year to do the album, and uh, which was it's just such a fascinating education in how the industry worked there the american industry and how different it is to what i'd known here in australia because this is before before mtv was a thing here you know i think mtv in australia was like two hours on a saturday night whereas in america it was the 24 7 tv channel
2: yeah
1: and the interesting thing is i remember in 89 when i was going back over there and I remember I'd watch a lot of MTV during the day because I didn't have a lot to do at the time. And there was a show called Yo MTV Raps. And it was, it was a half-hour show, and that was how much time they devoted to rap and hip-hop. And they'd replay it. So it was the same half-hour in the morning and the afternoon. And I'd watch it, and I'd really enjoyed it. And I uh, thought, man, I've never seen anything like this before. This is interesting. It's fascinating to think that now... It's almost like, yeah, let's have a show called Yo MTV Rocks and <laughs> put a bit of rock music on in between all the rap and hip hop, which dominates the scene now. You know, it's incredible to see that changing of the garden, mm, mm. the evolution of music. And I, I was living there when it all happened. So
0: well, very strange. MTV doesn't play music anymore. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. 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 Which is ironic. Uh, so when you were over there. Um, were you doing a bit of teaching at GIT, stuff like that? Were you doing master Uh
1: Yeah, well, that that was another – I you do know how that even happened. I, I'm pretty sure it happened through TJ Helmrich. Like I got to know TJ when we were doing the, the Nelson record, and he heard some of my playing on there, and he really liked it. He was working at Cherokee Studios where we were recording it, and he just liked my playing and um – uh, introduced himself and and once I jammed with him I was just like man this guy's unbelievable Yeah. You know? and we became really good friends and and TJ was teaching up at GIT and I think he put in a good word to me to Keith Wyatt who was then the uh, head of the guitar department and Keith's just a brilliant guy lovely player and great bloke and he got me up there to do a, a seminar and um the kids really dug it and uh it was it was pretty tough because I mean when he introduced me Nelson was just like kind of a laughing really I mean I mean it was a, a real shame because the image of the whole thing really undermined what I thought was some just some great melodic rock music you yeah know, right. good pop music and um, but Matt and Gunner were caught up in this whole this whole uh, like the uh, la rock scene you know the glam rock sort of thing and here's the interesting thing they had this uh, they had this R guy John Kolodner. And if you don't know who John Coladner is, look him up. He's a he's a piece of work. And um, if you, you look up uh, the uh, video for Aerosmith, dude looks like a lady, and there he is. Okay, you know, he's,
0: yeah, and his his name real, is on every record from back then.
1: He's a real character. Yeah, yeah and he was he's actually a pretty cool guy, and um, had this really nasally voice. You know, used to come into the studio, and I'd be I'd be in the middle of doing guitars, you know, and so I'm sitting there, and Mark Tanner, the producer's there, and Dave Thorne, of the engineers, there, and his he'd always come in with this incredibly beautiful girl hanging off his arm, you know. And he'd sit down and just hold court and listen, you know. <laughs> and um, so he'd sit down and listen, and uh, and then they'd finish playing the track, and he'd say, if I hear one more guitar solo, I'll stop this record. <laughs> and I'm sort of shrinking in my chair. But his vision for the band was to be the Eagles of the 90s, as he put it, which is interesting because to me that sort of says that he had his finger on the pulse that country rock, modern country was going to be a thing and uh, he saw it probably five, six years before it really happened and, uh, yeah, I really believe if if Matt and Gunnar had taken the band down that path, then they would have been at the forefront of a new scene rather than at the end of an old scene but how could you possibly know i mean you know as i've said hindsight's 2020 and at the time you know they wanted to be white snake and winger and rat and all the rest of it so which everybody did everyone was trying to be that absolutely and uh they were trying to follow that path but yeah culloden was on the money he uh and the sad thing is that if you actually look at the cover of the album matt and gunner are just dressed in jeans and acoustic guitars it looks like a country rock record yeah right and and the lineage of their father rick nelson like he was credited with starting the california sound and all that sort of thing so it all ties in but yeah unfortunately we went out in the trash with uh, a lot of other bands from that hair metal era and it as i said i just felt like it undermined what was a really good pop record
0: yep you know i was actually named after their father is that right? I was, I wow. was. Well, there you go. And I yeah. actually met Matthew and Nelson at um, Nam, not the last year, but the year before. Oh, um, and I got to tell them that. Um,
1: it's a shame I never met their dad because I only ever knew Rick Nelson as the singer, mm-hmm. and uh, whereas everybody knew him from the, the the Nelsons, which was the TV show, okay. and uh, and uh, in America, I mean, you know, that's an institution over there. That show, and I. Um, yeah, I feel like he would have appreciated that, it's oh, great, someone just knows me as the musician and not the actor. So
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. So I asked you about the, the teaching, and one great thing now uh, about trying to learn guitar is the fact that YouTube, there is videos yep. everywhere. So you had the video out of um, your teaching, and one thing I got out of watching that on YouTube because I – didn't have it back in the day, was that your four-note-per-string approach, whereas a lot of guys arrange their fast runs into three-note-per-strings. Uh, well, that's
1: all from Alan. And that's all that's from, from Alan Holdsworth. Yeah, Absolutely, yeah. I read about that with in an Alan Holdsworth interview. I would never have the brains to come up with that on my own. I mean, that was that was Alan's genius. And, of course, he had the hands to do it too, the big stretch. I've got tiny hands and crap stretch. I mean, really? it's, I've – yeah, I absolutely. Yeah, I've no facility to play those massive chords, and so in a way, I, I, it's sort of I feel better about explaining that to people because it's not, it's it's not from a uh, a genetic gift. It's if I can do it, anyone can do it because I'm more disadvantaged than most. I would feel, but um, yeah, that was Alan's idea to to arrange strings four note four notes on a uh, scales four notes on a string. Yep, because uh, it broke up patterns and got you away from that sort of stuff and yep when i first started to do it i started to come up with a system for it a pattern system and, and that's when i realized well i'm defeating the purpose because i that's how i got better at using chromatics as well because i kept hitting so many wrong notes i had to keep correcting myself okay and because uh, you're, you know, you're generally a half step away from what you want yeah and uh and, uh, and i thought well the value here is the movement it gives you movement around the fretboard and it's all it also makes you learn the fretboard because you you haven't got your old faithful positions to go back to you
2: know mm-hmm.
1: and um but it it took a long time you know but, uh, but i realized early on it was something worth persevering with so. yeah yep
0: i did try and incorporate some of that into my own playing after seeing your video on that and i couldn't get my fingers to do the stretch and i actually have quite large hands um but just wouldn't wouldn't gel with me. I I went for many years not really using my pinky. I was one of these guys that played with the thumb over the top and. Got gotcha. you. Yeah. 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 Um, so when I try and approach more of a four-note per string, I'm doing it as like a three-note and then sliding it up one. Um, yeah. Whatever works. Yeah. You yeah, know. yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there's no there's no
1: rule that says you have got to use four fingers. I mean, heck, Greg Howe's got some of the biggest hands i've ever seen mm. and yet greg does mainly these three fingers and uses uh his right hand to get those kind of runs okay so,
2: yep
1: and red beach would do it too you yep. know yep. Uh, the wild thing is tj who mainly keeps his left hand in a close sort of grip here and does a lot of wide interval stuff with his right hand because he plays the two hands on the neck and yet i've seen tj sit just casually like this with the guitar and he can play a tritone across the entire neck first position
2: wow
1: so that's a three a three fret stretch (laughs) it's ridiculous he's got some he's got massive hands and the biggest stretch and we were talking about i said dude i would give anything for your left hand and he said i don't even use it you know he said he mainly keeps his left hand quite close yeah for muting i think you know so because he doesn't use the hair ties you know yeah
0: sure sure
1: now, it's funny how we, we all approach this thing, but yeah. there's no rule. I mean, yeah, whatever gets whatever you whatever you imagine yourself doing, by any means necessary, go for it. Yep. You know.
0: So I was going to ask you about your approach to the fretboard because I'm the first to admit that I learnt my little box pentatonic shape. Oh, we're in A minor, I'm going to play at the fifth fret. Oh, we're in D minor, we're going to go up to the, the tenth fret, et cetera. And it wasn't until the whole YouTube thing became very popular that I started seeing... Um, i was was playing in a queen tribute band and i'd take extended solos and i'd have sort of improvise a bit and as soon as i got out of my comfort zone i started seeing videos of myself and oh man i'm lost i'm hitting a lot of wrong notes so so i thought it's never too late let's learn to navigate the whole fretboard and i'd start asking people what's your approach and it really struck me that everybody's completely different some are some some learn the, everything up on one string, uh, others are using the, the caged system, others are uh, three note per string. Do you have uh, an approach that well, connects I, the I, dots?
1: I, I hear music in intervals. That's how I approach music is, is if someone shows me a scale, I don't take any notice of how they play it all I want to know is what are the sequence of intervals, you know, whole step, whole step, half step, whole step, whole step, you know, Mm -hmm. what is it? What, what, what's the, what's the formula for the scale? And that way you could learn it on one string. It doesn't really make any difference, you know? And then the challenge of our instrument is, is developing that relationship across strings. And, um, I remember, I'll just grab this guitar. I remember I, I taught a beginner at MI and, um, Maybe I'm not back far enough. I don't know. And it was a, a, a lady, and she played a bit of piano. And she said, "What's a half step on a guitar?" And I said, "Well, it's that." And she said, "Oh, okay. So it's like a piano, just to the next key." And I said, "Yeah. The trouble is, it's also that." Yeah. And and you know, she was astonished. She said, "How can a half step go from being this little movement to this?" And I said, "Yeah. Welcome to the guitar. You know." Mm-hmm. and uh, And, uh, and then you add in open strings and the possibilities just go out the window. So, so, um, if you embrace that, you can use it, but it is, it's, it's a lot to learn, you know, it's a lot of stuff to get over, but, but, um, but at the same time, like I said, you don't, you don't have to go that path. You can just, whatever the system is that you get that helps you express what you're feeling, then that's all that matters. You know, it doesn't matter. Just because one person does thing one something one way doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. Mm. There is no right or wrong. Mm. The minute you get past that whole concept, right there, the whole world opens up to you, and you can just get on the with the business of enjoying it. You know. Yep. But the minute you start trying to sell your system as being better than someone else's, ah, you've gone. You shut that door now. You can't have it both ways. You can't have it where we can do whatever we want. It's beyond judgment. Just enjoy yourself. To yeah, we can do whatever we want, but my system's better than yours. Then, you know, you no. Nah. Yeah, the minute you open yourself up to that, then you've blown it because yeah, you'll get judged by everybody else, and they will have a valid reason for shooting you down. So, yeah, you know, I, I like the other approach where just just chuck all the rules out, enjoy yourself, and see what happens at the other end. Yep. You know?
0: Yep. So your approach to chromaticism is something that I took on board from from seeing your videos on YouTube there and not really something that i'd ever experimented with and as soon as i did people started saying to me oh have you been listening to some jazz or something mate have you you know picked up some jazz licks it's like no i'm just learning to use the notes just on the other side of the correct notes and sliding in and and rolling yeah, around yeah.
1: them yeah just passing tones i mean and that's that's that was how my primitive head heard jazz i didn't you know, I didn't uh I didn't know any other scales. All I knew was just some basic modes and I didn't even know what they were called. I didn't even know they were modes. I just like I said, to me, I was trying to play along I love Larry Carlton. Larry was one of my biggest turning points as a guitar player and I remember trying to play along with one of Larry's tunes and quickly sort of found out, Okay, it's in E and I thought, well see I heard music as happy and sad. I major to me was happy. Yep. minor was sad. Yep. Uh, and then Mixolydian, as I later found out, I determined was two beers happy, and, <laughs> and Dorian, the Santana mode, was two beers sad. Just not quite as sad as sad Aeolian. Yep. yep. And Mixolydian wasn't quite as blatantly sunshiny happy as major. You know, yep. it was just a little bit on the
0: uh, a little bit a bit wobbly. You know, yeah. I- I'm a you know. big fan of Lydian. Personally, but I, it's very hard to play. Yeah. Very hard to play Lydian and not sound like you're trying to sound like Steve Vai,
1: right? Yeah, or well, David Gilmore, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, you know, was Lydian-ing long before Steve Vai did? You Absolutely. Know? Um, yeah, Steve loves Lydian. He really he leans on that a lot.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and does it beautifully. So, uh, yeah, it's, that's what I mean. You've got to you've got to find your own way to express yourself, other than other than. I'd say if, yeah, if you find yourself going, well, I can't play Lydian unless I – if I play Lydian, I sound like Steve Vai, then I would I would say find a rhythm or a groove that is so far from anything Steve Vai would play. Okay. And, and choose a sound that is unlike anything Steve Vai would play. Yep. And do not do any – which is what Steve Vai always does. And, yep. and don't get me wrong, I love it, but um, don't do that. Yeah. I think Wayne Krantz said it where he just – I forget who Wayne said he was a huge fan of. like, And he said you just have to walk away from it. If you're ever going to find yourself, you've got to walk away from it. And in a way, that was – I had to do that with Alan because I was – well, the one thing lucky with Alan Holdsworth is that he's such a genius way beyond anything my lizard brain could ever come close to getting to that there's no hope of me ever copying him because I don't know what he's doing. I never we'll never know. Sure. Um, And – all I had to do was really embrace all the sounds and the the influences I had before I heard Alan, which was blues rock, which was the seventies, you know, before, before I heard Larry Carlton and Alan, I really, I would have been happy being Mick Ralphs from bad company, you know, or Brian, Brian Robertson from thin Lizzy. I mean, I would have been, that's the sound I was really going for. And then Larry got me started and then Alan just finished it off and Eddie Van Halen, you know, like the and, uh, so I mean, all I had to do was really embrace that sound again, and then and the slide playing, of course, just that's that's just another universe. And I can I could just stop playing all the diddly widdly stuff and just play slide for the rest of my life, and I, I'd have my thing. I'm going to come so, back to
0: the slide because that's a whole different topic with, with you. But is, it, just,
1: is a is a is a bathroom break built into built into this live? Uh, you know what? Broadcast?
0: You know what? I'm going to start doing that. I actually rang a couple of friends after my last one and said, these generally go for two hours. I think at the one hour mark, I should get people to come and do a little live performance here and and use those if you'd like to go take well, one please buy, buy with, re- yep yep yeah. and I'll I will so try and kick
1: yourselves all yeah, right?
0: yeah i'm going to read some comments and and things so it's not just me folks it does happen um now i'm going to bring up and i'll bring this up again when brett comes back but he mentioned uh, larry carlton and something for me that i learnt was using motifs and I got that from a Larry Carlton video on TrueFire.com a uh, paid for teaching site and what he meant by motifs was listening around to the band. Someone will play a cool little lick, they might go ba da ba And you go, okay cool, I'm gonna take that. ba da ba da ba da ba da 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 ba ba and making Melodies, not just going widdly diddly for no reason. The first time I ever tried that, I was playing with my friend Mikey, who I've played in bands with for 30 years. And he's come up to me, I've gone to use that concept, and straight away he's just, excuse the French, but just looked at me and just go, fuck me, what was that? I was like, ah, Larry Carlton taught me something there, motifs, and it's a very big thing. So I'm going to ask Brett what other things he got from Larry Carlton but I'm also going to pick his brains about his slide playing because he's a different player when he puts that slide on and he can go from that beautiful legato stuff to just the most beautiful melodies. Most of the stuff on John Farnham is him playing with a slide and the melodies that he comes out with is absolutely beautiful. Have we still got people in the chat room? If so, make yourself known. And there's a few comments there that I will read out to Brett, and I can hear that he's coming back. I'm back. Yeah, yes. mate, uh. mate. I just went on a bit of a rant then. You mentioned uh, Larry Carlton. Yeah. And on the True Fire site a couple of years ago, I paid for, for a year's subscription on that. And I was just saying to the folks that he had a thing called blues motifs, and he explained his use of motifs of you're stuck for ideas, listen to the guys in the band. Someone will play a little doodle doo and you go, thank you i'll take that and how that really opened up a melodic sense in my playing um what is that something that you would use and have you picked up anything else from larry carlton that you'd like to share with people man well larry so here's the thing um
1: guitar player magazine once again the first issue i ever got had jose feliciano on the cover and uh which was kind of cool because i i actually was a jose feliciano fan my brother had his live album yep and so that that got heavy rotation along with everything else and uh but the other the other cool thing in that issue was the guy uh, uh barry can't remember his name he, he played lead guitar for the atlanta rhythm section great guitar player yeah. beautiful player yeah he was a real hot picker too like a great sound like and then the second issue I got had Larry Carlton on the cover. And, uh, and I remember talking to my brother in law, Wayne. Wayne. Wayne McKay is a, my brother in law. He's a, a fantastic drummer. And Wayne's influence on me is profound. Like his album record collection is something I would just pour through. And you wouldn't believe some of the gems I found in there. Cool. And of course, he was, a, he was a massive Crusaders fan. And he said, Larry Carlton, yeah, it's Steely Dan, Crusaders, God, you know, come on, get into him. And so I just happened to be in the record store, uh, local record store, and here is the very first Larry Carlton album, the one with Room 335 on it. And that's the album he was talking about. Uh, and I think he just released Strikes twice when he did this interview, so I found that one later. But, yeah, this, this album, I brought it home and put it on, and the thing that hit me about Larry was he's a guy with obvious jazz, heavy jazz harmonic sense, but with a rock tone. Yep. And the ability to use a rock and blues sound and feel, but with just notes I'd never heard coming out. Not like that, not yep. the way he did it. Yep. And uh, and his phrasing completely captured me. This is before I'd heard Alan and Scott Henderson and all these other people that would come along later on. But uh, I remember TJ and I were hanging out one day. This was like 92 when we were working on our first album together and we he said, you know, I've never heard any, we were talking, Larry must have come up again, you know. He said, I've never heard any Larry Carlton. I said, oh, we've got to go We're up to Tower Records and get a get the album, you know. Yep. So I, he walked up to Tower Records on Sunset and bought uh, that album. Brought it home and put it on as soon as the, you know, as soon as the solo came on. He just looked at me and went, ah. He just realised, I got your number, pal. Here's mm-hmm. where all your stuff comes from. And yeah, it was, it was pretty self-evident that my phrasing was all Nick from Larry. Just yeah, changed right. everything for me. Yep. So really, what I, like I said, I, I didn't have the brains to to go through Larry's harmony. You have to understand, like after those four lessons I took from Jeff here in town, I was self-taught. That was it. Okay. I, it was putting the needle back and forth on all my LPs and ruining them. Yep. And I did. St- I studied classical guitar with a great player named Don Charlton when i was 17 i did that for about a year and don was great he was a younger guy who loved uh eric clapton and and but he was he was great he got me into classical guitar and taught me how to read music i suck at it now but i got pretty good back then cool and i even managed to figure out a few john williams the guitar player not the composer yep a few john williams pieces by ear which is i still can't believe i did it wow yeah i learned gavotte entirely by ear uh took all day and yeah it was hard but uh sucked at playing it but i did figure it out but um um but yeah i couldn't analyze harmony because i didn't know what harmony was unfortunately classical guitar doesn't teach you about harmony you're playing some of the best you'll ever hear but you don't know what it is you don't learn chord voicings you don't learn the scales that go with those chords i tried to find a jazz teacher but there was none around I, I looked and there were no other players in town that could help me because we were all flying blind we didn't know what we were doing and um uh so i i it wasn't until i went to the states and met tj that we were jamming and he said he said you really like playing in mixolydian a lot and i said i do and he said you don't know what that is and i said no, i've no idea and he and he played me the scale, and I went, ah, the Larry Carlton scale. It uh-huh. was the one where I was trying to figure out how to play on Larry's song. Yep. And I went, well, it sounds happy, so I played a major scale, and I went, oh, no, no. The okay, so don't hit a D sharp, hit a D natural.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So without realising it, I'd learned how to target an interval and play modally. So, so that's how I thought. I thought, play all the things you would play in E major, but play the flat seven. Okay. And, and uh, that's how my head works when I play music, you yep. know. I don't play like if I play a I don't play modes where I play a major scale in another key to match a chord. I play sure. I play from the root of the chord and that's the sequence of intervals that sit in that chord. So, you know, if I play the altered scale, I don't play melodic minor a half step up. I play half step whole step half step whole step whole step whole step. Yeah. uh
0: uh-huh. So, on the, so on I'm the the p- other approach whereas I'm thinking well that uh that we're playing in B but there's a a and an e chord in there so really it's an e i'm gonna solo like i'm an e but the root note that we're playing around is b so so that's more yeah yeah
1: they're all valid and as long as you can stay in touch with melody then then it's all good you know but it's just how my brain works i can't help it i keep getting drawn back to the tonic and then i've got to start from there and yeah unfortunately I, i i can't it's kind of one of these and i'm no good at it so yeah and it, frust- it does frustrate me. I wish I could do the other way, but uh, but yeah, Larry was Larry was the guy that really hit me with phrasing and also with the way he just we- weaved a line, wove a line through changes. You know, like it was. I thought, God, I'd love to be able to do that.
2: You know?
0: Well, it's funny because uh, I mentioned to you, I'm, I'm good friends with uh, Louis Shelton, and he was around one time. We were working on a little video thing for him, and we well, Larry.
1: Larry spoke volumes about Louis. Yeah, they're, they're good
0: friends. And we watched a little video on Larry, and he was talking about his approach and how, to me, it was very mathematical. And I remember turning to Louis and going, is, is this how you approach things? And he just looked at me and said, uh-uh. <laughs> no, totally not. He's just sort of using his ear. And, um, yeah, he said, nah, man, that's too much thinking for me. But, yeah. I wanted to bring up the slide playing for you because – as much as we saw in that little clip that I played earlier, your chromatic, your legato, your all that type of playing is just amazing. With Farnham, most of those iconic solos were with slide guitar. And it seems like almost when you're given – I'm going to use the word restriction. It's probably not a restriction, but it's just a, another medium to play with of having a slide on your finger – Man, the melodies you come out with, those solos are just beautiful, man. Just, How did you get into the whole slide playing? Was that something that came um, naturally? Oh, no. No? I don't,
1: think slide, I don't think slide playing comes naturally for anybody. I sound like a I dead cat. I sound like I a remember, dead cat. I remember reading a Dwayne Orman interview, and he said that when he first started doing it, he said the rest of the band would look at each other and go, oh, no, he's going to do it again. And I thought <laughs> – i said well there it is you know if the best in the world one of the best that's ever lived went through that we all go through it so yeah I, I remember watching countdown back in the day i was I couldn't have been any more than about 14 i think and little river band had just released a song called every day of my life and rick Formosa was playing this beautiful slide i think rick was a big uh lal george fan from little feet and uh Love Rick Formosa's playing. Always tried to figure out what his, what his kind of background was. I've never met him, and I've done a lot of work with Graham Goble. And Graham said, "Yeah, Rick was a loud George fan." So, I thought, ah, that sort of helps me understand how he, where he works, how his brain works. But then, you know, Rick's also an amazing orchestrator. So there's an amazing mind laying his hands on that guitar. So, but I just loved it, and I thought, oh, this is brilliant. I got to get me one of those. So I went to the local music shop and bought a chrome one. And came home and it looked so easy and it was so bad it was just awful and i remember i just sort of went well that's the end of that threw it away you know and much later i was talking to that guy i mentioned before glenn quill quilly and uh quilly was uh he's about 10 years older than me and he introduced me to some of the greatest stuff like quilly introduced me to the blues breakers album and and allman brothers and you know so many great things came from talking to quilly and he said wow he said of course you sound like crap he said you guitar you got to tune your guitar to a chord and um because i was playing the strap with the whammy bar i had to buy a, a cheap les paul copy and i tuned it to open i think it was open a but it, no i tuned it to open e that's right open e and um and that was much better and then of course i uh saw this live clip of Joe Walsh. This is before I even bought the guitar. I saw this live clip of Joe Walsh doing Rocky Mountain Way where he took the regular guitar off and put the slide guitar on. Uh-huh. And that's when I noticed Joe, Joe wore it on uh, his second finger, the finger. Okay. And, uh, and I just thought, okay, well, I guess that's the finger you wear it on because I think Rick was wearing it on his third finger. But uh, that's why it ended up on this finger. And um, so I was playing in open E. And I really loved that that relationship between the second string and the third string where you have the, uh, it's a th- major third, fifth interval, you know, uh, which is because the, the G-string's are half step up kind of thing. And uh, eventually I developed enough control muting-wise where I could keep the thing quiet and have it just do what I wanted it to do. And uh, went back to standard tuning, but I really missed that third interval and because i had it on the middle finger i just thought i wonder if it would work so i just angled it like that and i could get the interval again so i went oh happy days right. so you know off i went so yeah so yeah that's sort of that's sort of the uh the beginning of the whole slide guitar thing but but uh i just look at it was just a a series of events where i just happened to catch rory gallagher on uh, the old gray whistle test one night on the ABC and uh, that was life changing you know just to see Rory like that it was one of the greatest performances I've ever seen and and I was lucky I was lucky enough to grab a cassette because I could record the ABC through my FM radio oh nice into my onto my uh, cassette deck and uh, managed to get a large bulk of the show and yeah I just lived and breathed that for decades I mean I just love Rory I just did a on my YouTube channel, I just did a, a version of Walk on Hot Coals as a sort of a tribute to Rory. So, nice one.
0: So, yeah, nice one. So you mentioned that different interval. I, I went to use that finger, but you said this one and angling it somewhat to get different intervals that most people wouldn't get. Did that take yeah, a while get... To, to get that down?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. It's still something I got to work on. Yeah. You know, it's like it's a bit. It's still a bit touch and go. You know, it's not an exact science, but look slide playing to me is like singing like if you don't do it your pitch goes you know like i just the better i the more i more slide i play the better my pitch gets so um that's why you hear the great slide players and you know there's, there's never even a question of you sonny landreth or Derek trucks or or david lindley or anyone sure. you know you name one yep. and there's never even an issue there's that there, it's just it's just beautiful and perfect you know and with me, it's like, it's a bit dodgy, you know, so.
0: Well, you said the magic it's, word there with, with Derek Trucks. Um, that's one slide player that I go, man, you you sound like a a woman singing. It's yeah, a, it's yeah. It's a beautiful thing to hear him play.
1: You know, I jammed with Derek when he was 15. Oh, really? Yeah, TJ and I had a band, a fusion band back in 95, 94, 95, I think. And uh, we were trying to get a spot at the Nam show where we could play with our band. And uh, we were endorsing Hughes and Kettner at the time, and we asked them if they had anything going on. And they said, well, we don't. But they said, Washburn have got a big show. And they said, we do know – they must have known people there. And they said, we they need a band to back this young guy named Derek Trucks. Would you guys do it? And we said, yeah, we'd love to. you know. And they said, yeah, you could play a couple of your tunes, and then Derek could get up and play with you. And uh, And we – i I knew straight away i thought Derek trucks i said i wonder if he's in relation to butch trucks from the ormond brothers because it's an unusual name and and i found out that that was his uncle butch was his uncle and uh we tj and i met Derek in the afternoon with his father and um he was only 15 and um and uh his dad was just great Derek was very quiet he just sort of pretty much said hello and that was it you know and his dad was a great guy and we're having a big chat and so yeah, Derek's he's off into Miles Davis and John Coltrane, all sorts of stuff. It's incredible. And I was like, wow, this is this is incredible. And uh, so we we you know, we played a couple of our tunes at the Washburn show and then Derek got up with us and we just played a blues. We didn't know what else to do, and I don't think Derek cared, so we just played a blues, and I just remember looking at him going, Man, he's a great slide player. He'll be he'll be great, you know. Yep. But back then he was very much in the Dwayne Orman mould of just that's what he sounded like. He sounded like a young Dwayne, you know.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. And then 10 years later, I was uh, 2004, I was at, in America doing some stuff again, and uh, I went into MI to do some just some guest teaching, you know, a bit of open counseling. And I noticed on the wall there was a sign saying, tonight, the Derek Trucks Band. And I went, oh, wow, you know, this would be great to hear the young fella again, see what he's been doing, you know. Yep. So I go down there, and I remember sitting there and just going, this is what it must have been like to walk into a club and hear Jimi Hendrix for the first time. It was just, it was religious. It was biblical. It was unbelievable. I thought it was, and it wasn't even, like, I mean, if Derek had just stood there and played, it would have been like that. But then to hear him with that band and the way they just breathed with each other, it was, it was otherworldly. Wow, wow. So, yeah, Ever ever since then I've been just a, yeah, just a Derek Trucks disciple. So,
0: yeah. Brett, before we started, I, I told you that I'm having issues with my interface that decides to go up and down without me touching anything. You did see me change the battery in my camera just before, but folks, uh, thank you for letting me know that my mic dropped. Is that any better? I know there's a slight delay before you can actually let me know, but I'm. Looking sound fine to me. It sounds fine to you, yeah. Yeah, mate. This is the last time I'm. I'm going straight down to the, the shop and getting a new interface. There's nothing in the stores at the moment because of the current situation, which has been very frustrating. That's why I can't get a yeah. battery adapter for my camera. Uh, but until anybody lets me know any differently, I hope I'm not distorting now because that would really piss me off. But just um, you're talking about Derek being so good at a young age, and it's like Joe Bonamassa. Like I knew of him when he was 14 years old. A lot of people, if you've got it, you know it at that young age. Now it's distorting and being told. Okay, that would be right. Okay, how's that, Linko? I'm just going to go back a bit. It's really annoying, really annoying. Hopefully that's okay. Keep letting me know, guys, as I'm talking, because it's been a bane of my existence lately, is my little interface here. Um, So, yeah, just saying, someone like Joe Bonamassa, absolutely kicking ass at a young age um, did when you were young um, and you were saying about you know learning all the deep purple stuff do you think you would if you listened back now you'd pick that it's you that's it's the the same style you'd maybe just well I was dreadful
1: at a young age really? I mean yeah and there's a there's a reason for that uh, it's it's just the lack of information you know um, I remember picking up duke magazine i don't know if you remember that that there were two trade papers around when i was young duke and ram and they were they were the just your standard australian rock trade papers and they told you what was going on out there in the world and i picked up a copy of duke magazine and i was 14 and they were talking about the band feather which had a very young Stuart fraser in it Ah. at 16 16 years old and there's a pitch, Swanee, uh, John Swan was the singer. Uh, I think Stuart's brother, Warwick, played drums, I think. Was really? It? And, and I remember they. I eventually caught them on Countdown doing a song called Girl Trouble. And I was just going, oh, my God, if this, is what, if this is what your average 16-year-old sounds like, I'm dead in the water. You know, Stuart had this excitement to his notes that I just couldn't figure out. I was like, why don't? Why don't my notes sound like that? What is he doing? I couldn't see. So then I'm watching Countdown once again. They were doing something like ACDC came on. They were doing something like high voltage, I think. And it's right at the very end of the song. And it was probably a mime. I don't even know. But it was right at the very end of the song. Angus is hammering it up and he hits this low note on the like a G on the low E string and shoves the guitar right in the camera. And I could see his left hand wobbling the string like that yep and i went you've got to wobble the string mate you've got to wobble the string that's vibrato i didn't even know what vibrato was no one told me no one taught me about vibrato they weren't included in the four lessons i had you know <laughs> i was wondering why when i just hit a note or even bent up to it it didn't sound exciting that's what Stuart was doing he was he had vibrato yep. good vibrato Yep. and i went and that was life-changing i mean this is this just shows that the universe we're living in now with everything at our fingertips on YouTube. I mean, you can learn what would have taken me five years to learn. Someone can learn in literally five minutes on YouTube. Vibrato was a mystery. I remember the day I held a note and then bent the lower note up a whole step in u- to unison with it. You yeah. heard the two of them together and went, oh, my God, that's how you do that, you know the ability to bend a string and then do a pull off like Brian May was doing a lot of it. It took me months to figure it out. And then another six months to perfect it. It, you know, these are just dumb things that you'll learn. Like I, I never got those lessons. Like when Jeff was teaching me those first guitar lessons, he was just showing me how to navigate a fretboard, like how to actually hold a pick and play a guitar. Like we never got any further than that, but, Now it's all on YouTube. You want to learn how to do some of the most complex things in the world. There is close-up footage and tab and notation. Absolutely. Either by the artists themselves or by someone who knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you want to know what those Alan Holdsworth chords are with the harmonizer settings? I can find a clip that will show me how to do it. You know, it's like. It's a different – this is why we've got such great young players because they carve decades off the learning process. Whereas back then for us it was like needle, LP, ruining, scratching, unplayable, dead, and then, oh, there's just a shot that there's going to be some sort of music on one of those two channels I can get here in the bush, you know. And I might get to – and it was usually Countdown. I thought I might get to see something. I remember the first time Van Halen were on Countdown doing You Really Got Me. I'm sitting there like this, waiting through every horrible new wave, rotten disco song. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this guy's standing there playing this Explorer. And I'm going, what's this? And then by the time it gets to the solo, I've caught this glimpse of something. Something happened, yep. you know, that involved this. And then it was gone. And I went, they repeat this show next Saturday. So I had to wait till next Saturday and I'm sitting there with my cassette player <laughs> and I recorded it because I didn't even know what the band was called. I didn't even catch their name. Yep. And uh, so I've recorded it and I've looked at it and then I've gone into town and bought the album, brought it home, and now I've got Eruption to listen to and I've just had to sit there and go, how would he do it? How would you do that? It had something to do with this hand. Yep. And I'd nutted it out, you know. Whereas, yeah, it's like the the age we live in now. You want to learn
0: anything, you just go look it up. I think the problem with it being so accessible now, though, is that back then, when we were trying to work stuff out ourselves, we weren't getting it exactly the way they're doing it. We were coming up that's with right. our own thing. Whereas now, yeah. everyone's like, "Oh no, no, he uses this finger, and he anchors this or whatever." Well, but what's you? Where, yeah, where's that's you?
1: Right. You know? So it- and you is and you has got to be contained within two bars. It can't be like oh I've got this you know I've got this technique where I play with my nose you know like I'm on my elbow or it's not about that because that'll that gets you through one thing you know it's got to be in that in the touch in the the way you touch the instrument and the way you choose the sound that expresses you like mm. like I'm so lucky that people have told me they can hear me within 10 notes yeah. you know five notes
0: and like, that's so hard to come up with that identifiable it's, thing. It's, it's the thing. It is. It is absolutely the thing. everything else doesn't
1: matter. Um, it doesn't matter how many chops you've got. Yeah. It doesn't matter how fast you can play. In the grand scheme of things, without that, you just, you know, you just you're just a, you're a walking gimmick, mm. you know. And I'm sorry, that is the hard truth of it. And the sad thing is, I believe it's in everybody. I've sat in a room, and MI I with 10 guys in a room all jamming and I've said to them I remember saying to them all one day at the end of our little session I said you know I could pick every single one of you guys in a blindfold test just based on your vibrato mm. just based on how you play into a note and out yep. of it yep those nuances are in all of us yep. you know you don't have to play the exotic scales or anything you've got it just let it happen you know
0: you said it before with with Angus Young man he's got that it's like he's nervous blah, 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 it's so quick but one Absolutely. note, and you know it's him.
1: You know it's Angus, yeah. My
0: first guitar heroes, Hank Marvin was the first thing that I, I started learning to play, but then Mark Knopfler, the whole Brothers in Arms era. It was around sure. about the time when um, I saw you on TV with doing the, the Whispering Jack concerts. Well, I mean,
1: I, I got it. Sultan's a swing. I got it then. Man, so, he
0: plays you know. one note, and I just go, that's Mark Knopfler. Um,
2: yeah, sure.
0: Man, I, I interviewed Rick Brewster the other day, and – I kid you not. About an hour later, I went into JB Hi-Fi and I walked in, and there was a solo playing on on the stereo, and I didn't know the song. And I went, "That can't be Rick Brewster. That sounds just like Rick Brewster." And then yeah. the, the vocals came in. It was Doc Neeson. I went, "Ah!" Oh, and it happened to be a a best of. Well, I mean my uh, my cousin's
1: band. Uh, well, back in the <laughs> back last year when there used to be gigs, you know. Um, they, they just play in one of the local pubs and they're a really good heavy rock band and they, they play a lot of angels tunes and sometimes I'll fill in for them And yeah, one of my greatest pleasures is whenever they play an angels tune, I get to play one of Rick's solos mm-hmm. because they are like, they're just majestic compositions all in, all in my, all in themselves. Absolutely. You know? They're just they're so beautifully written. Yep. That, you know, you just do the song a disservice to not play them, yep. you know. Yep. I I'd I'd consider it sacrilege to improvise something. Why would you, mm-hmm. you know? So, so, yeah.
0: I did say that to Rick, that there's no way that I could play No Secrets, for instance, and and not play that solo. I feel like
1: I feel like playing something and not playing George Harrison's solo. Exactly, exactly. Yep.
0: Yeah, yeah. And he was saying that that comes from singing, singing out sure. loud yeah. what he wanted to hear. And running with that rather than trying to show off chops, which yeah. there are guys who can connect the dots. You can have beautiful, the right chordal tones and everything. And I, and I don't mind it when there's that bit of liquid in between or, you know, the string lines in the 70s on TV shows was a classic for it where you had the, yeah you know, to get to yeah. a certain thing. And that's great.
1: Love scene by Barry White, you know. Listen to that. So. Yeah. Look, I mean look, this I love chops, obviously, you know. Yeah. One, one of the most, uh, one of the biggest abusers of them in the past anyway. Yeah. And um, much to my detriment detriment because once you establish establish yourself as a shredder, there's no going back, mm. you know. Mm. No amount of me posting clips of slide playing is ever going to undermine the fact that people think I'm just a shredder and there's nothing I can do about that. Yep. And uh, um, but and I love technique, but it's just that the technique has to be connected by identity. You know, Ingve is not a great guitar player because of his chops; it's because his personality is in
2: there. Mm-hmm.
1: Steve Vai, it's his personality is in that technique. You know what I mean? Yep. It's like it's like it can't just be a succession of notes beautifully played with precision which is what shred is you know that's what it is but it's when you combine that with an incredible personality paul gilbert you know like i mean
0: he's gotten so good as he's gotten older like in his younger days yeah it was all the yeah three note per string but he where he's taking it now and kind of walking away from that a bit but playing a lot of slide playing a lot of slide just really nice bluesy kinds of things but then, knowing that he's got that to fall back onto, that at any sure. at any time he can just rip your head off.
1: vicious <laughs> um, yeah. right hand. Mm, yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, but no,
1: it's just I don't I don't mean I don't mean to to sort of say it in any way like the chops are bad. That's ridiculous. Mm. You know, the more technique he got, the better. Man, I love watching these guys play and have. But they've also got personality. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. You've got. To, And that's just as simple as sitting back and letting it come out, you know, like you've got it in you, just let it happen. Phil Buckle was the guy, when people used to come up to me in the pubs, when we were just in our pub band, they'd walk up to me because no one had ever heard the people I was listening to. No one even heard Eddie Van Halen back then. This is before Jump and before Beat It, you know. And they'd definitely never heard of Alan Holdsworth. And so they are walking up to me and they'd never seen anyone do this and they'd never heard anyone play the legato stuff like that I was trying to copy from Alan. And they say, you're the greatest guitar player I've ever, I've ever seen. I've never seen anybody do that. And I'd say, well, I copied these two guys, Eddie Van Halen and Alan Holdsworth. You ever heard of them? And they go, no. Nah. And I'd say, well, here, I'll write their names down. So I'd grab a coaster and I'd write it on the – give it to them. They'd sort of you know, look at me and wander off. And, and um, I remember I was down at Soundworks in Ringwood near melbourne paul gale was fixing my gear and while he was while he was fixing it sometimes i'd wander down the street to helmets music which was just down the store uh down the street it was a store down the street and i'd go in there and just play guitars and muck about and i remember i went down to this back room they had uh with a and had a sign up no stairway to heaven you know no <laughs> smoke on the water and i was like bloody hell uh, tough room you know so i plugged into this amp and got a guitar and had it really low, you could barely hear the guitar above someone talking, and I'm just down there noodling about as I do. And this head comes around the corner, and unbeknownst to me, it was Phil Buckle. Wow! And I'd been in the store like a week earlier. Same deal, only I wasn't playing. And Phil was demonstrating a guitar to somebody, and he was doing the the harmonics technique that I, that Tommy Emmanuel's famous for, yep. Lenny Brew, you know that sort of style of thing. And I remember just going, who's this guy, you know? I didn't even know who he was. And, and this guy's head comes around the corner. And I went, oh, my God, am I playing too loud? Am I playing too loud? And he said, no, no, you're fine. He said, what are you doing? And I said, "And I said, what do you mean? And he said, play. And I just did my shtick, you know. And he said, wow, that's really interesting, you know. And, and I said, oh, well, I copy these two guys. I started doing the spiel. I was looking for a beer coaster to write their names on, yep. you know. And Phil said, I know who those two guys are. He said, what are you? You're doing something else. You've got something else going on here. And that was the first time anyone had ever said that to me. Like, Phil, I, it was the first time I'd ever met a guitar player. I didn't, still didn't even know the magnitude of the guitar player i just met in Phil Buckle. Yeah. Like what a genius. Absolutely. But he, he was the first, it was the first time anyone had said, I know who Eddie Van Halen and Alan Holdsworth are. I know they're playing. You've got something else. And I walked out of there like going, I've got something else, you know. There's something of me in there. That stuff that I used to listen to when I'd try to copy Eddie and I'd try to copy Alan and I'd, this other thing would come out. And I'd just sit there and go, I'm useless. I can't do this. I'm getting it wrong. And it's like, well, actually, you're getting it right. Mm. You know, you're, you're being yourself. You, you know, the fact that you can't copy them is a blessing. Don't try to copy
0: absolutely, them. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Be influenced by them, get it wrong, and keep the wrong and make it yours. You know, and that's what that's what we should do. You know,
0: totally. Now you, you mentioned Phil, Phil Buckle, and um, when you did uh, have a bit of a hiatus from the John Farnham band, you were re- re- you were replaced with two guys, being Phil Buckle and Jack Jones, also known as yeah. Erwin Thomas. Exactly.
2: Um, yeah.
0: Now, yeah, those guys when they were playing your solos, I, I don't recall them ever trying to. Do it with a slide. They would sort of just play. You stand.
1: I, I, I know Phil does play slide. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Jack. Well, I, I know Jack as Irwin now, but I knew him as Jack back then. Yep. In fact, I introduced Jack to John. I, in, I met Jack. Oh, it was before he'd met John. Yep. Like, and it was just you know. I, I remember we hung out for a while, and I just remember sitting there going. I should quit playing guitar right now and manage this guy. Yeah, you know, Because, like, sure. you know, just I thought, where you know, sign him up, someone. Yep, you know. Yep. But anyway, it it happened anyway. Yep. So But um yeah, I know I know Erwin doesn't play slide. He probably can. I'm sure he can. Let's face it. If it's got strings on it, Erwin can kill it. Yep. But 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 it's just probably not his thing. You know, he doesn't have a connection to it. i I just play slide in such a weird way. Like I just That's me, isn't it? You know, like everything's just not quite there, is it? Like, I mean, people would look at me, they'd look at the hybrid picking thing and go, Oh, so you can play all that country and western stuff, you know? And it's like, No, can't. No, Danny Gatton, no, can't do any of that. You know, Scotty uh, Scotty Anderson, no, can't do any of that. I just do my thing, you know? So it's like the slide playing, they'd be like, Oh, so you could, you know, I could give you a a Dobro and you could play like some. some Delta blues and no, nah, can't do any of that. Uh, any, any, uh, you know, Robert Johnson, no, nah, got none of that. Dwayne Orman no, nah, useless. Yep, yep. Uh, I just do my thing. You know?
2: Are
0: you yeah. any good at playing solo pieces? I know if I someone gives me a guitar and says, "Play me something," I'm like, uh crap. Do you want to like, give me some music to play over because I don't know many nah, pieces. No, crap. F-
1: I grew up. I grew up in a band. Yeah. you know, like I grew up in a band. That's how I learned how to play was with a guitar, bass, drums, yep. singer i people give me a guitar to this day and say entertain us and i'm like i don't know what do you want to hear i'll play some scales for you if you like yeah. but yeah no i'm not a solo performer and it's look it if i you know i could sit and play a couple of acoustic things just not very well but i, I don't want to be i have no desire to be that guy you know i don't want to be i like being in bands and Thing is, the bigger the band, the better. If it's if it's if they someone puts me in a band and says, Your job is to sit up the back here and play little rhythm bits all night, I'm like, Love it, I'm there. You know, it's not like, Let me down the front, you guys, I've got to show everybody how amazing I am. You know, it's like, I hate being down the front, I'm not that guy. I like being in the middle of something big. I would have been a really good second violinist or something Sure, you know sure. And it's, i love being part of a big picture
0: it's funny you should say that because um i had the weirdest day <clears throat> the other day where uh i mentioned i went into jb hi-fi and they're playing the angels and all that day it seemed everybody that i had been interviewing over the last few weeks a couple of months their music was just following me everywhere and i went to a friend's place i just got my, my new laptop and it's like oh you've got yours i got mine we can hang out and keep working on stuff, and she had um, Foxtel going, um, one of the music channels, and Two Strong Hearts came on. Um, <laughs> and there's you all, well, A, filmed on the Gold Coast, uh, which is where I'm from, and out the front yeah. of the Miami Ice, Miami build, ice. yeah, which is Miami now gone, yeah. that's been knocked down. Oh, is it gone? It's gone, yeah. that, was an, that was been there since I was a little kid, I, I always remember it being there. But um, there's now a, a residential high-rise there which is called, funnily uh, yeah, enough, yeah. Miami Ice.
2: It's still called Miami <laughs> so Ice. They kept the name. They kept the name, yeah. yeah.
0: But what got me was in that you were standing behind the drummer. Angus, you weren't down the front going, hey, I'm, you know, Brett Carr said, yo, check me out down the front. No,
2: just nah, like nah. you were saying,
0: you, you while well, everyone else is sort of not vying for the camera, but you were almost showing away from it, quite content to hang behind Angus. I, I mean, look, I will do it
1: if it's required because a lot of times it is required it's like you know you've got it you've got to go down the front and do this and and then i've done my own gigs where i you know it's been me fronting the show sort of thing you know i may say that and look it's fun and everything i'll do it my way i'm just a bit goofy and and how you going you know but uh but yeah I, i i I have no desire to do it. If I can do it and and it's effective, then that's fine. And I'm happy to do it and I will enjoy it, but it's not a driving ambition. Like I, it's not like I have to be, I have to get all the solos and I have to do this. I I actually did a tour with Paul Stanley many years ago back in 2008. Yeah. Well, Paul Murkovich, the keyboard player from the Nelson band, a bit of a long story, but Hey, we've got time. Yep. It's, uh, you know, um, Paul was, uh, on this show called Rockstar. remember in excess did a show where they were looking for a lead singer. And, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, they had this incredible house band with, uh, uh my friend, Rafael Moreau, Moreau was playing guitar. I met Rafael when I was at MI and, um, Paul was the MD at a house band and they were just ballistically good. And they did a second one with, uh, uh, Gilby Clark and Jason Newstead and someone else. I uh, can't remember. And, uh, And, um, oh, Tommy Lee, that's right, I forget. And uh, Paul Stanley was watching this show and he said, I didn't care about who they were looking for, I just wanted the house band. You know, he grabbed the band and used them to record an album and they had a fantastic rhythm guitar player whose name I cannot remember and I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember his name because he was a gun player and an incredible singer. And he couldn't do it, this Australian leg of the tour, because he had to do something else and Paul asked me if I'd do it. Cool. And um, I was... Paul Stanley, I got to say, is one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. He's just a beautiful guy, is that right? really, and lovely guy. Yeah, just a just a, an absolute legend. Just wonderful fella. And uh, prior to this, when I was learning the material, I was in England doing some guitar clinics, and uh, I did one in in uh, uh, I, one where I met up with Paul Cornford and James Cornford, father and son of Cornford Amps, mm-hmm. you know, and, and um. We went into London that night, and I said, is there any chance – because I knew they knew Guthrie, of course, because uh, Guthrie was using the chord for Naps. And I said, can we hook up with Guthrie? And they said, yeah, he's in town. So it was great. I got to meet Guthrie. Oh, nice. And, oh, it was brilliant. We went out and had a curry and got hammered. It was just fantastic. And, and I remember Guthrie said, so what are you doing, you know, and what's going on? And I said, I'm going to do a, a tour with Paul Stanley of Kiss. I said, yeah, I'm playing rhythm guitar. And <laughs> Guthrie said, you're playing rhythm guitar did someone miss a meeting? (laughs) (laughs) Just, yeah, beautiful guy. He's so funny. He's just a, just a gem. And I, I'd said, no, no, Rafael Moreira's playing lead guitar. It's in good hands. Trust me. And I was, I was so happy to just stand there and play power chords all night. I had so much fun. Loved it. I could have, I said, this is my new career. I could do this all night, you know, and Rafael just killed it. Just went out the front and laid waste to the joint. And I just really enjoyed that. Like just, being in a band, fulfilling a role and enjoying being there. I mean, you know, it's not about the solo. It's just, for me, it's, even though I'm known for just being the solo guy, you know, I I, lo- I love working with other guitar players and I i got to, I was so lucky I got to work with Stuart Fraser for 25 years, you know, and, and it was like a masterclass in how sure. to be a musician, you know. And uh,
0: Well, yeah. Stuart, Stuart was a very big influence on me when I first started working out songs by ear those noise works um solos were easy that was the kind of thing i could work out It didn't have all the the fast but i could oh okay i could see those little shapes that he's doing there and
1: and he could do it he just he just didn't when he did it was like a shock really and oh yeah yeah stewart was uh there were sides to his playing that a lot of, Well, you know, he's one of the greatest acoustic players I've ever seen. He was very capable of doing all the Boom Chick stuff, Chet Atkins, Tommy Emanuel. Yep. I mean, he would hear some Doyle Dykes tune in some strange alternate tuning and within an hour he'd figured it out and he could play it. He was just one of the most naturally amazing musicians I've ever been in a room with. Wow, you know? wow, cool. Un- unbelievable, yeah. Like, I was a huge Noiseworks fan long before I met him. Yep. And, uh, yeah, I just felt so... Incredibly blessed that I got to become such good friends with
0: him. What, yep. A, yep.
1: what a loss. What a loss.
0: That damn C word, mate. It's yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Too much of it, and it's actually pretty close to home at the moment as well. But I'll move on from that. Um, you mentioned your hybrid picking, uh, and I saw that on the video. That the, you'd be playing with your with a pick, but then when you're going to skip strings, your finger will just pop out and, and grab that. Well, it's how I sweep pick you know it's like the the turning point was well phil
1: once again you know i was going to say phil i saw him phil phil worked at soundworks for a while when when i used to go there and get my gear fixed and soundworks had a sort of a retail section for a while in the late 80s and so i walked in there one day with my gear to get repaired and phil had a video on and uh, it was uh, vinnie moore Mm -hmm. and he was doing his first instructional thing and he did this this thing and I went, oh my God, what was that? And Phil said, that's called a sweep arpeggio. <coughs> I said, I've never seen anything like that before. That is unbelievable. And Phil said, well, maybe you should take this home and listen and have a look at it. And he yep. gave me Frank Gambali's first instructional video. Yep. So I went home and just watched that and went, my God, well, that's, you know, let's face it. Frank will just, you know, wipe the smile off your face in, in nothing flat. I was just, I was just, gobsmacked at what i was seeing and hearing and then much to my shock i real because i'd never seen anyone arrange notes the way frank did across strings i all all my thinking was kind of this way like along the fretboard
2: because
1: mm-hmm. i didn't have any alternate picking facility and still don't really i'm crap but uh so i just had to mainly if i was going to do an arpeggio i'd skip strings you yep. know use get the intervals that way and I'd never seen anyone arrange the notes like Frank did because unlike the metal guys, Frank was doing very small sweeps but between two, three, four strings, yep. which I thought was much harder to do than just rake across all six, you know. And he was also using scale lines, like, I mean, using that technique to play scales. It was ama- amazing. I never seen anything like it. And I realized that I had a certain amount of facility within the fingers, the pick and the other three fingers, where I could incorporate... The concept, I never took any of Frank's ideas, thank God, because it's so identifiable. You know, once you go down that road, you've just become a poor imitation of the master, you know, Frank. But but, uh, luckily, I could really get a lot of Frank's concepts and come up with my own ideas. And these just stuff just started pouring out of me, which was really good timing because I didn't want to keep doing any more tapping because I just felt I never really came up with much original anyway. And I just met TJ, and I thought I'm going to stand here with one finger poking around like when well, I'm standing next to this guy. And uh, and then it was lucky because after a, about a, a few months of working on that particular angle, I did an album. I was in the states by now, and I did an album called *Trivial Funk*, where I got to play with Frank and Sean Lane. I had so, that album. Yeah, so I got to meet. I got to meet Frank. I was at the studio. Uh, this beautiful studio out in Costa Mesa, I think it was called. I think it was called Fast Forward. I think it was where Alan Holdsworth recorded a bit of um, the uh, uh, Metal Fatigue album. Okay. And uh, used a beautiful 50-watt Marshall there that was their in-house amp. Oh, I'd love to have that amp now. I'll tell you, it was a good one. But, yeah, as I was finishing up, Frank was coming in, and I got to have a chat to him. It was the first time I'd ever met him, and, and we're, we're still great friends to this day. He's just a legend. Nice. What a guy. Nice.
0: Well, i got to say, um, my approach to modes came from being a 14-year-old kid in 88 and seeing him doing an Ibanez clinic. And yeah, um, yeah, his approach to it, where he played something, he played the chords, same three chords, just in different sequence and landing on a different one and saying, what key is this? And people would go, oh, that's in G or that's in D or that's in A. And he said, ah, but they were the same chords. And then, so yeah, that's more the way I think about things. But he said after he'd uh, done some playing, Any questions? And everybody went, And he went, uh, Any questions not to do with the way I'm picking? Because I'll come back to that. Yeah, Never yeah. Went, <laughs> and everyone <he> went, Okay, <laughs> so you all want to see that. And it was the first time I'd ever seen anybody sweet pick. And it was mind blowing, man. It was totally mind blowing.
1: I, I actually I actually uh, only recently messaged Frank with this story. And was when I used to used to travel a fair bit with Bobby Rock from the Nelson band and we do drum clinic tours with with our friend Carl Carter on bass and and we were way over on the east coast of the states and we would finished doing a gig and these I was having a chat with these guys and they said you know wasn't that long ago we came to this very club and it was to see the Chick Corea Electric Band no it was to see yeah that's right it was to see the the Electric Band they were the headline
2: mm-hmm.
1: they said the opening act was Alan Holdsworth wow and we've stood there and watched alan and his trio and we both looked at each other and went wow i feel sorry for whoever the guitar player is is going to have to follow this and frank walked out and just laid waste to the joint and i thought to myself only frank could follow alan like only frank because number one the the musical knowledge done the technical prowess done but the originality of concept like like you just can't deny. Frank has just got one of the most original approaches that you could possibly come up with. Nobody sounds like that. Absolutely. And nobody plays like that. No yep. wonder Alan loved him so much because it's just, you know, it's just the same thing. I bet Alan would have thought, God, look at that. I never would have thought of that. Like, I mean, something completely original. And uh, and yeah, that's the that's that's yeah you know, yeah Frank I'm just out of nowhere, out of camera, just you know. Yep. Frank said he had, the, he had that choice of either go to a uni in uh, uh, some sort of conservatorium in Sydney or I could go to GIT. And he chose GIT and the rest is history, as I say.
0: Nice, nice. I actually did send a, uh, a message to him through his website asking if he'd like to come on. I haven't heard back yet. It'd be nice to see. Oh, I hope you get if, him. Yeah, that'd be great. Just, I'm just going to do…
1: Incredible teacher, yeah.
0: Absolutely. I'm just uh, asking folks that are still listening is if the audio is still okay. As I said, I have had some issues with my interface going from loud to quiet, etc., along the way. I'm gonna keep talking in the meantime. But I wanted to ask you, Brett, um, when I spoke to Thomas McRocklin a couple of nights ago, he had he walked away for 20 years from the guitar. By the time he got to about 14 or something, he he got caught in that whole rabbit hole of production and samplers and wanting to make uh, drum and bass music and all this kind of stuff, which I I went down that that road as well in the the mid-90s. But he said he didn't play for 20 20 years. It's only a couple of years ago that he got back into it. But being mentored by Steve Veyer, he said that Steve would have six months away from the the instrument himself Um, and and come back to it. And, yeah, might have to have a couple of weeks of of woodshedding to get the chops back. Have you ever had any time away from the instrument? To be honest,
1: no. But I'm, but I'm at the same time no, I've never had a I've never not played for six months. Okay. You know, nothing nothing like that. Yep. I mean I've never not played for a week, but at the same time I'm not a religious two hours, four hours a day guy. Like right now I'm not practicing a lot, you know. But I when I pick the guitar up now it's I'm very, very specific on on what I'm thinking about and why I'm even grabbing the thing. You know, I'm. it's that interval thing. Like a lot of times when I pick it up, I try to challenge myself to, <clears throat> especially with chords, to hear chord movement. Like start on one note and then build a chord from that note. And then from the next note, build another chord from that note. So small triads, sort of things like that. This sounds a lot more technical than it is. Believe me, I'm I'm no ted green but i mean i'm trying to far from it i'm afraid but i'm trying to come up with an approach that i relate to personally i've always had a hell of a time with chords that's one of those things i wanted to really get into with stuart fraser because stuart beautiful chord player like and just had facility with it he would play chords a certain way and go what wouldn't i think of that you know and he just had a way of knowing the guitar in a way that i didn't And i wanted to really work on that but unfortunately he got sick and we never had the chance to get into it and um and i thought well maybe i should i'm going to try and take my approach to single line playing and and trying to approach chords that way and and so it's not like i'm studying it every day for a long period of time but it's like when i do pick the guitar up even if it's for a limited amount of time uh, it's it's on something that's very important that i get closer to you know Mm -hmm. That's why I think, yeah, just standing here and if I practice a lot, I get technique. Everybody does. Yep. That's what technique is. Technique is time. It's woodshed time. It's hours. Yep. It's running. It's endurance is running, you know, and I can always relate. To, I used to, you know, be the gym guy years ago and I still exercise, but I used to be pretty hardcore into it back in the powerlifting days. And
0: I was going to ask you about that, yeah. actually.
1: Well, I mean, I was just I never played any sports and that was the sport I got into yep. with my friends. We got into powerlifting, you know. Yep. It was fun. But um hurt, but it was fun. But uh but you can relate it back to physical exercise. Like it's time spent, effort expended, rewards earned. That's what chops are. You just shove yourself in a room and you play and you will get better technically. Yep. But it, unless you're really side-by-side side, working on something conceptual, they don't grow. You, you'll, you'll get better at playing the same thing over and over again. But in the end, I just end up all dressed up with nowhere to go, if you know what I mean, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's like it's just – and like I said, the, the, I see young players, players young enough to be my grandchildren that are technically so far beyond what I'd ever be. I think there's got to be something else for me, you know. Can I do something else? Like the slide playing just to me is where I feel like I've got the most originality. This Rory Gallagher thing I just did, um, it's quite funny, you know. It's like uh, I was was working on a bit of thumb pick stuff because I never played thumb pick guitar before. And I I was fascinated with how the uh, blues players do that whole thumb thing. And I was listening to this song, Walk on Hot Coals, that we used to play in our pub band, Rory's Song. And, and I thought, man, you could actually you could do that like that, like a sort of a Robert Johnson-y type thing. So I set up a mic and I just did a, a version of it where I sang, in, sang the song and played the tune like that style. And I, luckily I did it to a click track and then later on I played bass and some drums and, and I had to put a solo to it. And I remember I had a crack at a, just a regular solo I went, well, that's rubbish right there for a start. You know, that's just completely inappropriate. Then I thought, maybe I can copy Rory and do like a Rory-inspired solo. And that was lame, beyond Oh, really? Lame. Yeah, it just wasn't working. I was thinking, I can't play a solo in this song, you know. And I remember standing there going, this solo needs a harmonica solo, because Rory was a gun harmonica was player. Was he really? Oh, God, yeah, one of the best in the world. I mean, he's a good sax player too, yeah. you know. He's like, genius. And one of the greatest singers ever, you know, like no one acknowledges how beautiful that man's voice was, you know. And uh, and I went, Rory would just do a killer harp solo. And I went, I'll play the harp solo on the guitar. So I played a guitar moniker solo. So, nice. So, yeah, it's a, 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 I loved how all it took was that mental shift to go, what's the direction? What are we doing here, you know? You could do any number of things that would have been fine, but, that was the that was the shift, and I channeled my friend Steve Williams from the Farnham band, and but what would Steve play, you know, and uh, just try to choose harmonica-based intervals, the way harp players think and the sound, and and I was just really happy with how it turned out, you know, it uh, it um it's a big part of of there's the thing. It's not about I've got I've got technique. I can play, therefore I shall play. You know?
2: Yeah. Yeah,
1: just, what are you going to play? Where are you going to frame it? You know, I remember Zappa used to talk about that. Like, a composer has to frame things. You know, we use a conceptual frame to put around something. He says a, an artist puts a frame around the thing, the painting. Otherwise, it's what is that shit on the wall? Exactly. You know, but, yeah, yeah. And composer has to put a frame around their composition. Otherwise, it's just noise. And yeah, I had to put a frame around this thing and go, well, it's a solo, but what's it going to be? How's it work in this song? And I was really happy when I did it because I thought, God, that's that's the big part of it right there. It's not even the, the fact that I was happy that I was able to play something. It's the fact that I even came up with an idea. So, yeah, the fa- even the fact that I could just hear that it should have been a harmonica solo, and if it wasn't COVID and we're all locked down, I could have just rang up Steve and said, you want to come up for a day and play a harp solo for me or and I come to you. So.
0: Yeah. Speaking of harp players, harmonica players, Stevie Wonder. Man, I can be walking through a shopping mall and I'll hear a, a, a harmonica solo on something, and I'll just go, I don't know this song, but I know that Stevie Wonder playing the harp because he well, played a chromatic harp with the, the button on the side well, there.
1: Steve, Steve Williams, we were in a hotel room one night, and he said, check this out. And he played Stevie Wonder's instrumental harmonica version of Alfie. You know, that song. And, and Stevie, uh, he does this sort of tonguing thing where he gets staccato notes. Yep. I actually did a few of those in this, in this solo and the Rory thing. And I went, Ah, oh, there's Stevie's harp thing. Yep, you know? yep. And Steve said, check this out. You know, he said, listen to this. He said, this whole website's devoted to how the hell he does this. You know, and he said, now you're waiting for the kicker. And I said, what's the kicker? And he said he was 15 when he did it. Wow. He's like fifteen or sixteen, I think, yep.
2: you know. Yep.
1: And you know, I think he was about about that age or not much older when he wrote My Sharia more. Like, I mean, Jesus, you know, like wow. what a you know, there, there's there's your humility right there. I mean Absolutely. You know, what do you what do you say to that? You know, like yeah. I mean you think back to all these classic compositions by by these people from way back when
0: <clears throat> and they were kids totally
1: my voice is getting scratchy i need a glass of water
0: yeah but if uh, you want to grab one that's that's fine by me cuz we haven't um, even sort of. we that's haven't good even good. touched on gear yet i was going to get to that but before i moved on to gear i wanted to ask you about now everyone wears in ear monitors and the like now but back in those days in the 70s 80s nobody really thought about it but hearing protection and a lot of the greats now are bone deaf yeah did yeah. you wear Earplugs protection. Do you have issues with tinnitus now? No, look,
1: I'm pretty lucky. Um, I mean, it is there. If it's a quiet night, especially here in the country where we have no real traffic noise at night, you know, if I lay there and I focus on it, I can find it. But it's got to be that. It's not like uh, it's not anything that's damaging or a problem. And and I guess I'm kind of lucky. I'm one of the few guitar players in the world that people ask to turn up. Right. I've okay. never, I've never been a horrendously loud player, and it's it's that need to fit in to the sound of the band. Yep. Like I don't want to be the loudest guy on stage. I want to be in. I want to be in it. You know. Sure. Look, if you listen to my albums, they're sort of wall of soundish. Like there's that. They're, they're a lush sort of collage of sounds, and I love that. Like I love that. I don't want to say orchestral. That's that's, you know, cashing. That's writing checks. My body can't cash. You know, but. Uh, <laughs> But I love that concept of like a, a, a whole lot of sounds blending in together, you know. Yep. And uh, and so, yeah, I've never been a really loud player, but I've been in some pretty loud environments. And so, yeah, if I'm going to play with my friends at the local pub, the earplugs are going in. I'm telling you, I ain't going deaf for that. Yep. And there's been a couple of occasions where I've walked away and gone, man, that hurt. That just hurt. Yep. When I was doing the Nelson gig, they had massive side fills and I was stage... Uh, well I was on facing the crowd my right ear was right next to that right side film we get if there were mic spikes happening this guy got it first so yeah, this right. one yeah, cell phone's always on this ear so yep. I think Jennifer Batten I got to meet Jennifer many years ago and she said from touring with Jeff Beck the left ear got it and I said so <laughs> yep. you know Depending on where we stand next to each other, we're either perfectly hearing or we're deaf. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. so I, I did have a chat with Jennifer a couple of weeks ago. Folks, if you're stumbling on this and um, you're thinking, what's, where's these interviews? Um, i got a whole playlist of these on my channel, chit chats with Git Cat. So please like, subscribe, all that kind of thing. I, I hate asking for that, but you don't. Gotta you do don't it. Yeah, you've got to do it. So, Jennifer, we had a great conversation about her hearing and she said just, the, you know, the wall of marshals with Michael Jackson as well. And that when she got her hearing tested, it was just this steep fall off at a really low too at about 2k. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. Mm. Um, so that is a big issue. I've had ringing in my ears since I was a teenager because started playing quite young in, in the bands and everything. But yeah. that whole being not too loud on stage it really depends on who you're playing with the gear that you're using how directional your boxes are I've always liked to play in stereo not because of I need you know, have two boxes I'm loud it's nope so I don't have to be as loud I can angle them a bit and I've got more spread yeah exactly yeah mm. yeah but I do realize um there's a you, you might be aware of a show called absolutely 80s that gets around Australia which is Well, the guys from the 80s, it's run by Scott Kahn from Kids in the Kitchen, but you've got Brian Mannix, um, all those guys. So I'm the Queensland guitar player for that. And depending on who's singing at the time, I'm drastically different on stage in terms of volume. Scott generally starts it off and he likes it down low, just sitting in the mix. Then you'll get Brian Mannix, Uncanny Axeman, walk out. And the first <laughs> thing he does is just look at you and he goes, fucking turn it up, mate. And you say, okay, <laughs> okay. there it is, yep. Uh, and then Scott to come back out. And then um, Sean Kelly's pretty easy, whatever's going. He's a, just a very cruisy, mellow guy. But then Dale Ryder just can't get enough from Boom Car Shopper. He's just like, yeah, and yep. he'll stand right next to my rig. And he's just like, more, more. And I'm like, yep. Dude, that's I'm past six, and on a tube amp on on my Friedman, it's not getting louder; it's just getting more compressed. So it's it really depends on who you're playing with, huh?
1: Does yeah, yeah. A lot of uh, John Stevens loves it loud. Yeah. Jimmy Barnes, louder the better. You know, it's like, uh, well, John's John Farnham's uh, been using in ears exclusively now for since about '96. Really. So it's really irrelevant to John. You know, we we don't use. in-ears on the... The singers are all on in-ears. Mm-hmm. But on the, the live gigs, we've been doing a lot of Red Hot Summers and Day on the Green stuff. So a lot of times we rock up to these shows and we haven't even seen the stage until we walk on. There's no not even a line check.
2: Yeah, right.
1: Um, and we talked about this quite a few years ago and just said it's safer if we just use wedges, just regular monitors, because uh, there'd be too many people yelling at poor old Adam, our sound guy. Uh, when we walk up there... It's usually set and forget. Once Adam's got it dialed in, it stays the same, and uh, and and uh, it's it's loud, but it's a good loud. You know, it's not uh, my ears aren't ringing by the end of the gig. I just feel fulfilled.
2: Yeah,
0: so. right, right. So, Brett, as I said, we haven't really talked about gear. Um, has there been any mainstays for you that you've used for, throughout the career, or has it been a constant evolution?
1: Um. Well, it's yeah, it's been an evolution. The after I had that horrible Jade amp that I talked about, yeah. and I finally started to work, I got uh, I got a guitar, uh, got a um, Marshall uh, 1970 Super Lead 100 water. Ooh. and I got it from uh, a shop in Frankston, and then um, I was lucky enough to get the matching slant cab for it. And I remember I, the first time I got it, um, I realised straight away, oh, this is going to be way too loud, you know, to to use. And then I read about In guitar player i read read about this thing called the altair power attenuator and this came out way before power soaks before tom schultz did that whole thing yep and i ordered it from the states and it turned up and it was everything i dreamed of it was perfect it was just the attenuator you put in between the speaker and the head and at that stage uh i was using the the first channel of the marshall channel one which was sort of normally the bright channel but uh just sounded great with the strat you know and uh and then of course like an idiot i was using a cheap guitar cable as a speaker cable and blew the amp up so melted the transformer completely so i got that fixed and then the first channel sounded like crap and the second channel sounded good so i started using that then i got a dodd preamp was one of the ones that didn't have the not even a switch just a knob so it was just like a clean boost and it just hit the front of the amp really hard Mm -hmm. and uh Gave you that extra overdrive, and these things sell for like five hundred bucks US on uh, reverb now, so they're quite the collector's item. Yep, and um, and it was just it's it was. I still listen to old cassettes, and if you can get past the horrible playing, the, guisa- the guitar sound is to die for. It's just the most beautiful, focused. That's your sound. That's your that's your blues, rock, metal. It'll do all that. You know, yep. But it's not metal in the sense that it's fuzzy and high-endy. It's just sweet. It's the best guitar sound I've ever had. And like an idiot, I sold that amp and it went round and round and round in circles for a while. I sold it after I went to America and needed money. I just figured ah, it's an old amp who cares, you. Know? And it, luckily, it ended up in the hands of a fantastic guitar player producer in Melbourne named Dave Carr. And, I, and Dave was kind enough to leave it at a studio a few years back so I could play through it again. And nice. He's changed it a lot, so it's more his amp now than it ever was mine. He's owned it for longer than I ever did. And I did ask Dave, I said, uh, would you sell it back to me, Dave? And he, he said, oh, yeah, I'll sell it to pay for my own funeral. And uh, I thought, oh, I'll take that as a no, thank you. So, But yeah, I was really glad it ended up in the hands of someone talented Mm-hmm. talented enough to get the joy out of it and and who also recognizes the value that he'll never sell it again so so then i i'd sort of amp hopped for a long time and in america used a lot of hughes and kettner preamps which were good gear but um and then i was struggling with this new hughes and kettner triamp triamp combo
2: mm-hmm.
1: i just could not pull a tone out of it and it was at tj's uh, apartment and, I said to him, Is this, am I nuts or I just can't get a sound out of this thing? He said, There's only one way to find out if it's any good or not. And he said, That's compare it to something else. He said, Let's go down the road to making music. They've got a Bogner's down there. And I said, What's a Bogner? And he said, You'll find out. And he said, so we went down there and just dragged the amp down there and we I plugged into a Bogner ecstasy, into one of their matching four twelve cabs. And I went, My God, I've been under a rock for this long. Yeah. I didn't even know that amps like this existed. The clean channel on this amp was uh, unbelievable. And, of course, the blue channel on Overdrive was like, I'm in heaven, you know. So I bought a (coughs) Bogner. Excuse me.
0: I'll give your voice a break there because there is a comment relating to that that I just read. Okay. Uh, If you want to have a sip of water. Uh, From Flash Grover, it says, Hey, y'all, I tried Brett's Bogner 100B when it arrived in Oz killer amp
2: yeah yeah
1: they're beautiful amps i'd love to get another one but uh the bank account can't support it i'm afraid and uh i, I had to sell that amp <coughs> we needed a septic tank so i'm afraid the amp had to go so oh
0: no you
1: know when you build a house everything everything must go so someone's got a beautiful Bogner that they got at a bargain price and if you're out there watching this uh i hate you and i'm coming for you okay so, <laughs> you know you got a killer deal on that thing and i'll you know, if you're suffering due to this lockdown, let me know. I'll buy it back from you. So, oh man, should never sold that thing. But, uh, but you know, hey, they're always making them. That's why yep. I looked at it. Like, you know, you can always buy another amp. You know, I mean, there's Friedman's, there's Sir's, there's Bogner's, yep. there's this, that, and the other. And you know, they're out there. And look, I'm lucky enough to be bestowed with all the beautiful Ax Effects gear. So that's my mainstay now. That's, so that's uh, what
0: you're using now, Ax Effects.
1: Well, I mean, as far as the Farnham stuff goes, I've been using an Axe 8 for for about the past three years. Yeah, right. And spent many, many hours dialing that thing in, basing it on real amps and getting good sounds. And uh, I figured, well, you know, you're either going up there with that mm-hmm. or you go up there with your pedal board and rented backline. Yeah. So the one thing about, we get to use the same monitors and they're good, like a... Like, uh, those those wedges we play through are about 10000 bucks each, apparently. Wow. So, yeah, they make sure that they've got good wedges for those gigs. I don't know what they are, but they're bloody good. Yeah. So I've got the two stereo monitors in front of me, and I get a little – my stereo sound through that and the band, and then we've got two – usually two backline backup amps, which we also run the Axe 8 into as well. Nice. So I've got it behind me, so it's like it's – I'm – I'm, wall of, I'm Pete Townsend up there. It's yep. just, I don't bother anybody. You know, you step two feet that way, no one hears it. Yep. And it's just ridiculously loud and good and heavenly, and I get all the feedback and everything, and, ah, just loving it. Great, so, great. Uh, great. And, the, the, oh, sorry, the, the, the thing is with the Axe 8 is it, is it never changes. So whatever goes to front of house, Grant Walsh gets the same thing every time. There's no mic placement. There's no wind. Mm-hmm. There's no rented backline amps that blow up halfway through the gig. Yep. I don't spend the first three songs my back to the crowd going like this. You know, it's yep. like I just get up there and I just do it. You know, and it's pretty much the same every night. So yeah, it's it just makes sense.
0: It's funny. There's a, been a bit of a shift in technology. Uh, as I mentioned to you, I've known Dave Leslie for a very long time, and I was using at Kemper when I was touring doing the uh, the Queen tribute. She, thing and um i remember mentioning that to him and he said oh, i've had a you know played one well in a shop it's it's not the same but then he had a bad experience doing a multi-guitar player night where he had a back line and amp that just let him down and as you yeah. know when when your sound's not on you, your playing's just not on and you just Said he just hung his head, just go well. Or, or when your sound completely checks out, yeah, you know, when yeah, you've got nothing. yeah, so, yeah. So he said he saw everyone else was using the Axe Effects and, and jumped on and, and got himself one. Uh, and I've checked out his rig now with the AX8, etc. And it's funny talking to Steve Stevens recently. Uh, as I said, when I do these chats, I, I get talking to people for half an hour beforehand. And, and Steve had just started using the Boss Tube Amp Expander using speaker IRs instead of miking up and just went, whoa. Never micing up again. His yeah, sound guy came running down to the front of the stage. That's the Waza thing. That's it? the one. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's yeah. an amazing piece of kit. that thing. yeah.
0: And there's a few things out there like that. Uh, have you heard of the uh, Blue Guitar Amp One? As a, a f- yeah, Thomas Thomas Blug. Yeah, Thomas is I a lovely Tom- mate. He's a lovely.
1: I chap. met Thomas when he was when he was working for Hughes and Kettner. Okay. he used to work for them. Yep. He's probably Thomas was probably one of the guys that implemented the Red Box technology. That was sure. The, they were they were years ahead of the curve with that, yep. you know, with yep. the speaker sim in it and everything, yep. and so yeah, Thomas is a he's a gem. Absolutely,
0: man. that's what Jennifer Batten's using now is the 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 Amp One, and um, yeah, yeah. I did have a chance to play it when I, I went to a YouTuber event last year in in Germany, and um, that's where I first met uh, Thomas and had a play with that unit, and that's really got my ears pricked my ears up in in terms of what I want to use.
1: There's so many options out there now. Like you know, all the the Boss gear is great, Kemp is great, uh, Fractal's fantastic. Um, you know, Line Six is doing it. Yep. Um, and there's the Blue Guitar. Uh, just the other night, uh, Friday nights, uh, James Ryan does a, a great fun live stream on YouTube and Facebook, and he was using the Synergy gear. Yep. And uh, that's that's based on when I was I was doing a lot of work for CMI here in Melbourne. Yep. When I was endorsing ESP and all that stuff, and uh, they were trying to get the Randall modular system going. Yep. And I think that's a follow on from that technology.
0: And that came from Bruce and Egnator, who I think. Bruce Egnator, Who exactly, I have yeah. I have to check my diary if he's not on tomorrow. It's the day after. I've got Bruce coming. Well, there
1: you in. go. Yeah, yep. talk to Bruce about yep. it. I'm, I'm sure Bruce is involved in the Synergy stuff. He is. Think, he is, because he owns yep. the license on that gear. Yeah. And yeah, and James, James was pulling some fantastic sounds out of yep. that, you know. Yep. So, I mean, you know, there's just. There's no end to what you can do now. like, And I, I totally get it. I If you're in, if you're in love with your old favourite amp and it's the greatest thing you've ever got, I I get it. I wish I had an amp that I could get married to, but I can't take it anywhere, yeah. you know, not even with Farnham. We can't travel with gear anymore. If you can't fit it in a small road case or in your suitcase, you ain't bringing it, you know. Isn't that
0: crazy what it's become? Because, um, you know, the days of touring acts back in the – right up until only recent times people used to do load the truck and go from town to town to do all these shows but now it's flying from city to city sometimes if
1: we do a run of red hot summer gigs say they will have a truck and we can bring whatever we want but at the same time I don't have an amp I don't have anything that I've that I'm looking at going that's my dream amp yep. if I had that Bogner ecstasy and the matching cab then you know That'd be my amp, absolutely. But uh, and I'd be using that every night. But uh, but you know, at the end of the day, it's like, what what kind of mic are they putting on it? Have they put it in the right position? Mm. Is you know, oh, there's so many factors. Bruce. If you go if you go DI, the consistency outweighs the rigmarole. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like the screw around the con- the. And the Axe 8 has been so bulletproof. That thing has never let me down, you know? Like, i just plug into that sucker and yep. years, like, you know, just been jostled around and, you know, having crap-tipped on it and all yep. the rest of yep. it. Um, it's just, yeah, sorry, I'm just plugging in my phone and right, my mate. computer. Right.
0: So I, I went and saw um, Southern stuff. Sons recently who did a, a reunion run of shows. Yeah, we did some of those gigs. with. And um, I... Uh, I used to go see them back in the day. I was a huge fan of um, Jack Jones, Owen Thomas, who I'm trying to lock in some dates with to come on and have a chit-chat with with me on this show. Uh, And I used to marvel at the huge racks full of gear that they had back in the 90s when I'd see them. And now they're all touring with AX8s as well. And I heard Reggie actually um, talking to somebody in the – after the show, a bit of a meet and greet, and just saying, "Wow, we can just recreate all those sounds with this little box." Now, it's a real—I hate the word "game changer," yeah. but it has been, hasn't it?
1: Well, the thing is, too, especially Erwin, Like you know, you could give him a gorilla amp and a and a guitar out of the Kmart, and he'd be able to pull an amazing sound out of it. You know, so you know he's always been able to he was way ahead of that curve with the Mike Landau thing as well. Like Earl was always dialed into what the LA guys were doing, mm-hmm. like, uh, as far as what they were using. And like, he was, the, he was the guy that had an eggnator before I ever knew what that was. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: And the soldano before I knew what that was. And,
2: yep.
1: and, uh, you know, he's just always had great sounds. And at the end of the day, it really is the nut hole in the wick. I mean, if you're ready to invest the time and, and, Dig around this technology until you get what you want out of it. You will get anything you want out of it. Mm. When I was doing the demos for my first album for Big Sky, I had a Boss rack mount unit called a VF1, and I bought it just because I used it for delay and reverb, and you could foot switch the delay on and off, and that's why I bought it. It was a little yeah. half space rack unit. Mm-hmm. And when I started doing the demos for that album, I I realised that uh, it had distortions in there, and it also had a speaker simulator. And it had one speaker simulator. That's what you got. And I dialed up all the guitar sounds, and I would put the demos up on, uh, I forget, it was like mp3.com. I think it was a site like that back then. This is like, like, uh, God, late 90s, I think, early 2000s or something. I forget, way back when. And uh, just to see what people thought of the demos. And people were—they were emailing me saying, "What amp are you using?" You know, Bogner, Soldano, like. Uh, I said, no, it's a three hundred dollar half-space rack unit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And and there you go. You know, it's like you can just take anything if you just sit with it long enough and you adapt your touch to it. Yep. And yeah, you can pull anything out of it. So.
0: Because it isn't—it's in the fingers, and that's one thing that. I and keep the brain, saying. you know. It's yep. In the
1: head, you know, like yep. a. The the greatest gear in the world does not a great muzo make, you know, I and. Mean, and the crappiest gear in the world doesn't stop someone from being a great muser. You absolutely. Know? You absolutely. All amazing stuff out of... Stuart Fraser was like that. You could give Stuart one... Remember those smoky amps that were built in cigarette packets? I'll just grab oh,
0: one. Got... I'll just grab one so people know what you're talking about. I got, I got everything here, mate. <laughs> I have everything. There it is. I've actually put a little... Clip on the back so I can hang it off a, um, off
2: uh, my pants Brilliant. or
0: something. But um, let me get in there. Let me grab my little switcher so people know what you're talking about. And I have to hide my eyes or else it'll focus on my eyes. But I think people can see that. That's actually a cigarette Brilliant.
1: packet. Yeah. Yeah, Stuart knew that guy that was building them. He met him in America and uh, became friends with him and he gave him one. And, yeah, you know, like Stuart was the guy that would plug into an amp and it could have the rattiest, weirdest sound in the world, and he would just adapt to it, and he would find something to play that made that sound work, like he would embrace the sound and use it, yep. like, whereas I'd just go, oh, I don't like that, it's not, not the bogner, you know yeah, yep. and whereas he wouldn't fight it, he'd just go, oh, "I'll roll with it T. j would do it too T. j yep. would just look look for the weirdest sound you could find and um and pull something magic out of it, something hilarious or brilliant, you know. Sure. Like yeah, he would just roll with it. So.
0: so, Brett, what's what's your number one guitar at the moment?
1: The this the the, the red Strat. That's what I'm playing. So. Back to that, eh? Yeah, I mean, I you know I, they change. I mean, I I was using the blue ESP, which is hanging up on the wall there for a long time, and that's that's a beautiful instrument. Um, but when when Stuart couldn't play with us anymore. In John's band, he had to focus on his treatment and everything. Um, I, I was still using the blue ESP, which has the humbuckers, and I just thought, you know, because Stuart would often plays Nags guitars and he would play a single coil, and I really missed that sound. And I thought, you know what? The strats really are the Swiss Army knife, aren't mm. they? You know, And I thought, I'm going to go back to playing a strat. So I was actually playing an ESP strat, one of the vintage series ones are really nice and really nice guitar. And I, I kept looking at, I was going to try and buy a Sir Strat. I really wanted to get one of Scott Henderson's strats because like, I uh, yeah, Scott's one of my heroes and not to try and emulate him, but I just know I've become good friends with Scott and I know how particular he is about gear. And I think if he's going to put his name on this guitar. It's got to be great. Otherwise he just wouldn't even let it leave the shops. And I thought, well, that's a, that's a shoe in, that's a guaranteed great strat style guitar and then i kept looking at this red guitar hanging on the wall and my mother had passed away and i thought she left me a little bit of cash and i thought i want to use that cash to get this thing back into playing condition because it had a weird Fishman bridge on it with a di split and everything and and uh i didn't particularly like the pickups and and it, it still had the original no it had this neck on it yeah and uh so I got a really nice um, Callahan bridge. Yep. The Callahan bridges are really nice. They're real vintage spec and. Yep. Uh, and I just completely by accident, or by fluke, the Virgil Arlo pickup company sent me some pickups for the, the some humbuckers. And I just went, man, these are incredible. And then I, I asked them if they'd be kind enough to send me some single coils, and I just went, well, that's it. You know, these are the greatest bloody single coils I've ever heard. And then I asked Scott about the buzz factor because um, he's got the SIR system where it's got the dummy pickup. Yep. And he said before uh, John developed his own system, he was using a system by a company called Illich out of uh, California. So I I contacted them and got one of his systems, which sits in the back plate, the tram plate. And that sucks out most of the buzz. So I've got my beautiful Virgil Arlo pickups, the, the Illich Illich system kill, kills the buzz, the Callahan Bridge. And and um, it is one of the most stable strats I've ever played in my life. It nice. Stays, it's almost like my mum just looked down at me and said, here, have a good strat, you know.
0: Nice one, mate. Nice one. Yeah,
2: so, it's funny yeah. you should
0: bring up the Illich. I have I I put together – I'm just going to switch to the shot of me. Uh, is that the right camera? Is that one there? Yes, it is. It's still the right one. Uh, you know what?
1: I'm going to to do another quick You go for it, mate, and I'm just
0: going to explain some of the stuff that you're talking about. So what Brett was talking about there, um, I've got several strats. That one there is something I pieced together from parts. I'm going to go grab it. Um, I had the Eulich system put in that, but the person I got to wire it all for me didn't do such a good job, so I ripped it out, and it's all sitting over there. Callaghan Bridge, that – Brett was talking about is in that one there and he is absolutely right that's one of the best vintage bridges that you could possibly get in and the clincher for me on that is there's no movement when I put the tremolo arm in it I hate it if the trim arm has any slack whatsoever but Callahan have got that completely nailed and I actually have my very first guitar sitting back there as well which is just down to the original body and neck. I've pulled everything off that guitar. It was a cheap Onyx copy that I got when I was 12 years old. And I'm going to restore that. And I've got a bit of hardware lying around, but if anybody has any suggestions of what I should use to, for bridge, pickups, etc., I am going to do that one back up. Um, I should go grab some guitars to show you guys what I'm talking about. I'll just lose the headphones for a second. This is the one that I put together out of parts and had the original uh, Illich system in. And that was actually a big... It was built into the the backplate on that, but as I said, uh, it wasn't wired so well, so I pulled it out, and it's sitting over just behind the camera, actually, in my little box of parts, and Mm. the Callaghan. One Callaghan bridge would be in my main workhorse strat, which is this guy. Right, there you go. I got cables and things all on the way here, and again, I have to hide my eyes for the camera to actually focus on this. But that has a I'm not going to take anything out. Callahan Bridge in there with um, Kinman pickups. A ah beautiful yeah big nine oh. Uh, so that's the sound of a P ninety, which I'd never tried until recently, and I'm a fan. Let me tell you.
1: Wow, that's great. Yeah, the Kimmons are good bridges, aren't they? Oh, the the, uh, the uh, Callahams.
0: Yeah, yeah. So what I was saying there, Brett, while you were away, was <clears throat> what sold me on that was it, it was a vintage-style bridge that the arm didn't have any movement. Um, exactly, Like, yeah, I yeah. use an arm much like Brian May would in that one finger is always on it, and let me just switch there so we can see the two of us. Um, <clears throat> so I'm doing subtle things, and if there's any movement in the arm at all before it actually moves the bridge i'm just yeah. what is this and they've got it sussed in the way that's why
1: i was i was quite shocked when i talked to scott about it because scott henderson because um he's so particular about everything and scott's on the bar all the time now you know mm-hmm. he's got he's doing some amazing things with the whammy bar and he didn't care he said oh, i don't care about the movement you know i to worry about it and i thought wow that's that's fascinating because i was yeah, you know, I was trying the old plumber's tape around the thread, and that's fine and everything. Yeah. But you got to do it every time you wind the thing in. And then I just heard about the uh, the Callaghan Bridge and how they sleeve it. But then they they also do everything else. And Scott talked about you know you got to you got to get rid of the sort of uh, some sort of metal plating they do on the block, the string block, and all that sort of stuff. And they do all that. You know they they just have the raw metal and everything. So. So, uh, yeah, I'm surprised he wasn't hip to that, but uh, but he didn't care, you know, so, yep, yep. yeah.
0: I just realized right. that as I went to grab some guitars, everybody would have seen that I'm wearing my pajama pants right now.
1: <laughs> as you should be. I'm wearing my tracky decks, yep. so, you know, well, it's like wow. Actually,
0: after we got the Skype connection and everything sorted, it, it, the sun went a little bit, I thought... Normally, I just wear a black T-shirt every time, so it's rare that I've actually got something on, just so nobody picks on me for what I'm wearing. I just keep it a uniform, and I forgot to take this off, but I thought, I'm going to get cold. I'll put my, my pajama pants on and my woolly socks. Well, so, with
1: us, the sun, the sun moves uh, this way, so it's going to be blasting in through these windows in a while, and it's going to be like a sauna in here. So, okay, yeah.
0: well, the the actual hue of your camera has changed somewhat. It was like a, a will, bluish, yeah. and now you've got the, the more of a warmer tone happening there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, does anybody have any questions for Brett? Because Brett, remember we said about the time flies. We have been talking now for quite a while. Yeah, um, we're, we're going on for two and, half, three two and a half hours. Two and a half
1: three hours. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm good to go for three. If you are, but I'm just yeah. thinking if anybody but, has any questions.
1: Steve Williams used to drive. We used to drive him mad when we would be touring with John, me, and Stuart. He said, "You let us within two meters of each other, and we just start talking about pickups and." You'd be like, God, it's always whammy bars and
0: pickups for you bastards, isn't it? And... It's bad for me because I didn't play a hell of a hell of a lot of guitar for a long time and was right into the production thing from the mid '90s right up until maybe five years ago. And so when I get talking with people, it can either be guitars, 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 or pro tools, <laughs> pro tools, preamps, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, it's.
1: It's a healthy subject.
0: It you know. is. Actually, I did a live stream a week or two ago. A friend of mine um, is works for Avid, the Pro Tools people. And he used to be my assistant in, years ago when I was doing albums around town for people. And now he's the top guy in Australia for, for Avid. And I said to him, you should come on. I'm trying to keep this a mixture of known players, manufacturers, and then people that we can learn things from. Because I want people to... You, If you want people to watch, you've got to give them a reason to give up their time. And I said to him, mate, do you want want to come on? He says, oh, yeah, but what the hell are we going to talk about? And I said to him, mate, um, you've been threatening to give me a lesson, a a Pro Tools power lesson for a while and all the stuff that I've missed since jumping in at 4.3 and I didn't pick up all these new things. Let's do it live. So we did, and that was was great. But then I clued him on to, just talking about, the gibberish talk. There was a segment on Dave Letterman years ago that I saw where the two guys came out and basically just read a flyer of the latest version of Pro Tools. <laughs> and it, to me, it was perfect sense. Hey, now available 24-bit, 96K, you know, you all this, the the normal stuff, right? The oh, crowd thought it was the most hilarious thing they'd ever heard. Like, Look it up on YouTube, yeah, you'll please. find it. And yeah, you know, oh, technical memos. So when... Guys get together and start talking gear. Yeah, absolutely. I totally get that.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's pretty funny. Yep. Some um, some people are so technically savvy, and they get into the minutia of, uh, of, of of specs. Yep. And then the and then some of us sort of shoot up the middle, and then there's others who just like I don't want to know about that. I just want to plug into it, and I, I love that too. Like I love the old school guys that that um. Where they just had people around them to sort of that out. Like there's this beautiful documentary about uh, Tom Dowd, the engineer, the mm-hmm. producer, engineer, and Eric Clapton's talking about him. I think he did Layla, you know, that it did the Derek and the Dominoes album. I mean, amongst a million other things, you know, Coltrane, Miles Davis, and, and Aretha Franklin. The guy's just a legend. It's one of the most beautiful documentaries. And Eric Clapton's sitting there saying, he said, I didn't really Felt like I, I didn't feel I need to talk to him because he was one of those behind the scenes guys you know one of the white coat guys yeah. <laughs> He says it wasn't, it wasn't until I got to know him that I realized he was a musician who also knew how to run all this stuff and make you sound good and, uh, and also had good ideas about your song and, and yeah it was interesting like the, that's why a lot of the guitar players the, you, you watch the edge on that it might get loud movie and he probably doesn't have a clue how to set up his rig.
0: No, no. That, that
1: thing is like Starship Enterprise, yeah, you know. Yeah, but but uh, but he knows how to play it, but totally. he
0: doesn't.
1: He wouldn't know the ins and outs of the thing, literally, you know. But so. then
0: you see an interview with Dallas Shu, his tech, and he completely knows it inside out. It's his
1: job to know. It, yeah,
0: yeah. maybe
1: just go to. Some... He, he Scott Henderson knows every cable in his rig because he soldered it. You know, yeah. he knows everything about all the tech, technical aspects of what he's using, and. I really, I really love that. Like I, I, Scott's a go-to for me. It's terrible name-dropping, I know, but I've just been so lucky to get to, to get to, become friends with one of the biggest influences I've ever had, and uh, and who is still just kicking ass out there. Like Scott's just one of those guitar players and musicians that's just getting better and better. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone's heard his latest album, uh, 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 "People Mover." It's just, it's unbelievable, you know. It's like that guy, man, he's just, you know, there's this fascination with sort of fusion now. It used to be neoclassical shred guitar and that sort of stuff. And now every young hotshot's a fusion player, Mm, you know. mm. Scott's the guy. He's the reason. Okay. He doesn't get the credit for that. But he is the guy who's triggered this whole movement. I guarantee it, you know. Sure, sure. He is is that bridge between, well, he's the bridge between Richie Blackmore and jazz, you know. like. I remember hearing him – I thought he was a jazz guitarist that bought distortion pedals and became a fusion guitarist. Yep. And then I would heard him talking about Richie Blackmore in his open counselling one day, and I said, wait, wait, you're a Blackmore fan? And he said, well, yeah, I, that's how I started out. I was Richie Blackmore, Albert King, you know. It's like – and he said, I'm a blues rock guitarist that learned jazz. Cool. I thought, oh, my God. I, I just thought he was so good at playing jazz and fusion. I thought he was from that world, and then he found rock. But yeah. no, he's uh, – yeah, he's a trip.
0: Now when you Wonderful. say say you know, new fusion players, do you know um Australian guitar player Pliny? Have you heard him? Oh yeah, I've heard Pliny, yeah, he's yeah. great.
1: Yeah. I, mean, I love his stuff, yeah. Well Pliny's even a different animal again, you know, like the way he bridges like like um modern production with uh like and by that I just mean modern rock uh production with with melodic rock, you mm-hmm. know? I just really love the way his songs sort of have that they bridge that that gap of of modern ambient music with uh, with metal, you know. Yeah. And it sounds natural. It's really organic. It doesn't sound forced to me. Like I've heard other people try and copy him now, you know, because that's what people do. The minute they hear something, they go, "Okay, so now I'll do that." And it's like, dude, think think for yourself, yeah. you know. Come on. Totally. totally. And But no, they just they all they know how to do is copy. I'm afraid. So.
2: Yeah. Mm. Like, you a, don't want to do that,
1: man. You don't want to do that because you might end up on a gig with Plenty and you'll suck, because he's the he's the real thing and you're not, you know. It's
2: yeah,
1: and uh, but yeah, Plenty stuff really just sounds fresh to my ears and it's obvious it comes it came from here. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, absolutely. Um, Maybe- but see, there's another guitar player I love called Michael Brook. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of him. Joe Crichton turned me on to him, and he did an album a long time ago called Cobalt Blue. And uh, I went looking for that album on Joe's recommendation and couldn't find it, so I found this live album he'd done called Live at the Aquarium. And uh, now Michael's—he's a trip. He he uh, invented what they call what is what he called the infinite guitar system, and it's like the sustain, sustainiac, the yep. Fernandez sustain yep. type system, or the sustainiac, which
0: which is like an Ebo in a pick. I've got you know one back I
2: mean? there. Well, had one and, back and there.
1: Yeah, and uh, Michael invented an, uh, it. Was a separate system, and that's what the Edge used to do with or without you on the Joshua Tree and yeah, all that right. sort of stuff. And because Michael did a few albums with Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno, and that's michael's sort of known for doing ambient music. But he's done a lot of beautiful film score stuff. His music was featured in Heat, the movie, and uh, Into the Wild. A lot of lot of really good stuff. And this this live thing, it's him at the London Aquarium, which is now a gig apparently, and. Uh, and it's him sort of playing to loops that he's set up. So it's years ahead of its time in that regard. How he swells them in and out, I don't know. But he's doing it all live. And uh, I remember it was one of those albums where I, I bought it and I was listening to it. First time I thought, yeah, it's kind of cool. Second time, it's kind of cool. Third, fourth, it's kind of cool. And by the fifth time, I just went, oh, my God, he's a genius. This this is genius, yeah. you know, like I just. And so that's – I hear that and then I hear Pliny and I think, well, there's, a, there's another connector there, you know. It's like, it's like Michael's music with, in Pliny is like that with some Metallica chucked in there or Pantera, you know, like yeah. or something. It's modern metal, you know what I mean? So, so, yeah, I love the way music sort of morphs into itself and Absolutely. is a hybrid of other elements.
0: And, and it almost seems like uh, when you like, – the, the beauty of a band – as opposed to being a solo artist is when you get all different influences come in together and you've got yeah. guys from all different walks of life, musically speaking, that just create a whole new path. And like you say, you know, you're not trying to sound like somebody else. It just comes out that way.
1: Yeah. If it's a true band where there's no, no one uh, sort of dominating the vision and it's input from everybody, it, uh, something amazing can happen, you know. Like look at the police. I mean, you know, the police. Even though it's their Sting's songs. I mean, I mean, for the most part, I know Stuart and Andy did contribute, but the songs we, <laughs> the songs we walk away are written by Sting. Yeah. But it's the alchemy of those three guys. You know, they they those songs would always be brilliant no matter because Sting said, you know, he said Roxanne was originally like a bossa nova or something, and and it sounds beautiful like that. Yeah. But nothing sounds like the police, but the police because of Andy and Stuart and Sting, you know, it's, it's those three guys that make that band unique. And the police were instrumental for me to make me stop thinking that music had to be number one heavy and it had to have a roaring guitar solo. Like it could just be a great song. You know, that, that was the police. I went, okay, now I just listen to music. I don't have any preconceived notions or prejudices about what it is. so, it was. It made me just admit that I just love pop music and music in general, and it didn't have to be macho, posturing and all this sort of crap, you know.
0: Yep. So, Brett, you, you touched on something before you when you mentioned the powerlifting, and I know back in the earlier days of Farnham, um, John would would call you Rambo, and you did look like Rambo from the movie back then. So, was the the weight training was it powerlifting, or were you getting into bodybuilding back then? And no, it was
1: powerlifting. It was this powerlifting. No one, no one would ever want to see me running around in my undies. I tell you that yeah. much, but the the Rambo thing is very funny because um when i was first touring with John uh I just used to wear a tank top. David Hirschfeld's father was fantastic. he used to come up to me and say, "I call you the man of many tank tops <laughs> <laughs> brilliant and um he was a great guy and uh and so i I just bought a tank top and it had mango written on it. It was the mango brand, I think you know must have been. A brand back then in the 80s and we we're backstage at this gig after the show and i'm just standing there and steve housden was there from lrb yep. and he said what's that you say on your tank top rambo and john went ah oh, that's it you're rambo from now on oh, that's it you're done and uh, and it just became a nickname and it's sort of funny because people often they talk about that era and they say god you were huge back then and i'm like oh always been a little guy i'm very small like i mean i'm only five foot nine in a strong breeze oh, yeah. and um yeah i'm, I'm not tall um i i think it's the deception of how you look from the stage and under yeah, right. lights like and i suppose I, I was bigger back then because of you know i was younger and i was working out a lot but uh but no we, we it started off just doing basic bodybuilding movements look i'd never played any sports and and I was fascinated by the fact that you had control over how you, you physically looked. I, I thought you were just either born fit and muscular or you were a fat guy. And yep. I've always kind of struggled with my weight because uh, I love food. I'm a, I'm a foodie. And uh, and uh, I thought, wow, this is interesting. You can actually control the way you look.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I became fascinated by that. And so it, initially it started off as doing bodybuilding movements and then we eventually, me and my friends eventually migrated to a gym in Bendigo, which is about 45 minutes from here. And it was run by a guy named Laurie Butler. And it was, Laurie was one of the greatest powerlifters in the world. And, uh, and that was when we just got into that actual sport of powerlifting. And it was tremendous fun. We just all did it together and it was a hang and, yep. and, uh, yeah, it was, it's great fun. I'm still really interested in it. I just, just last night I was watching, uh, some
0: international powerlifting stuff, you yep. know,
1: Fascinating to me how strong people can get. It's incredible.
0: It's funny. Um, I'm the opposite. So I'm 6'3". So i am always been tall and lanky. And right. I've spent a lot of my adult life um, being in the gym because I don't want to be skinny. Uh, it the opposite thing, right? Yeah. Uh, but I have had issues with tendinitis in, in recent years, and I think it's because of overplaying, and then also the gym thing. So during the whole lockdown thing uh, and the gyms closed, I completely stopped and I'm back to being little stick man Rick again. But uh, I just started up. Yesterday was my second day back in. And let me tell you, after that first day, no weight. Pretty much just doing it, you know, bench pressing with five kilos aside, just getting the movement down to make sure, you know, build again from a tendon level. I'm not going to feel this. Two days later, sore, ooh, yeah, incredible man. Let me tell you, it's wild, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, the
1: soreness is incredible. It's uh, it's I, like amazing it many, I like it though, I like it. Well, you know, it, it makes you feel alive and yeah. it makes your body. I, I, um, look, it's like anything, you've got to approach with caution and you don't want to overdo any one thing, mm. you know, you, anything can be overtrained. Like, like, I about two years ago, well, it's two years since, but. For about two years, I really got into the skipping rope, okay. and I just loved it. And it was brilliant at keeping the weight off. Like it was, I've never been fitter. Yep. And uh, it got to the stage where I could I could skip for like forty minutes straight.
0: Wow, that's a good.
1: Gr- I was doing I was doing it every day, and uh, yeah, from phenomenal for building just good endurance, and and I loved it. I thought, God, I finally found an aerobic activity I really enjoy because I hate running, hate it. The same. I love swimming, but who's got a lap pool, you know? Yeah. And, uh, especially a heated one. And, um, but then I started to get problems in my forearms took about two years to show up, but it did show up and the skipping rope had to go, you know, just, I just had to stop. Yep. And, uh, so yeah, any, you can't overdo a good thing, you know, you got to just be careful and with weight training, you know, the, like if I do deadlifts and stuff like that or, or chin ups, I always use wrist straps. So I take the stress off my hands. Yep so i don't have good grip strength but who cares i'm not competing you yeah. know? Like, it was
0: chin ups actually that 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 actually really messed with my forearms i worked out that was the thing
1: yeah you got to use wrist straps mm, you got to yeah. if you're a guitar player like a, you don't get the forearm development and you don't get the strength but uh, but you know that that's that's all right and look as you get older like i'm i'm uh, 57 now so i mean my training now is based around uh, a based, based around just very, very careful self-preservation, you know, like I don't – my ego is out of the equation. <laughs> there's no there's no numbers to brag about, not that there ever were, but there certainly aren't now. Yeah. It's just about I'm glad I can get out there and just move and do something. Nice. And I heard, a, I heard a fantastic quote, and this applies to anything. This is one of the greatest quotes. It did come from some fitness thing on a YouTube site, and I can't remember who it was. But it was most people overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in a decade. And I thought, man, that is a fantastic quote. If you chip away at something, then within 10 years, you can transform yourself at almost any age, you know? Yep. But if you say, I'm going to get this down in a year, some things just take longer than a year. We as musicians know that.
2: Yeah.
1: Like if you say, I'm going to learn to alternate pick like Guthrie Govan and I'm going to do it in a year. It's like, yeah, well, good luck with that,
2: you know. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, I think Guthrie's been doing it a lot longer than that, you know. Yeah. It's like, you know, or, or as an example, you know, of anything. And I'm sure Guthrie would be the first guy to say, mate, you know, just take your time. There's you know, there's 30 Don't plus hurt years. Here. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah just yeah. chip away, you know, and like yeah. But yeah, it's a great it's a great quote to remember. So
2: Cool,
1: cool. So Brent. if I if I chip away at it, you yeah. know,
0: there was a really good good question when I I said before. Does anybody have any questions before we round things up? Because sometimes it takes a while to get through there. Uh, the first response to that was awesome chat. No questions required. Cheers from Deja Voodoo. Yeah. Uh, which I thought. Oh, everyone's been a bit quiet, but maybe we're we're onto a uh, we're onto a boxes. good thing. Yeah. But my friend Link, who goes by the name Big Fella Link, I said I'm six three. He's six five. Um, wow. Right. Yeah. Uh, he says, okay, here's a question for both of you. Playing a Strat, you can only choose one selector switch setting. Which is it? So which position for you, if you could only use one on a Strat? That's hard, isn't it? It's hard, isn't it? I know what it wouldn't be, for me
1: anyway. Well, I think I'd probably have to go with, it'd be either the back or the middle, probably the back, i'd say the back yeah. i've got i've got mine rewired so that i've got a tone control on the back pickup nice. so so uh uh i can you know i can get at least a little bit of tonal variation and i'm not limited to just the the squawky brightness of it so I, i'd probably i'd go the blackmore route and either be front or back he just takes the middle one out, you know, he says, I don't like, you don't like the uh, middle pickup too. Yep. Sorry, spinning everywhere. It's too much gray area there. So black or white, that's me, you know. I
0: very rarely use the middle. Very rarely use the middle. Uh, So for me, that is a tough one, isn't it? I'm going to throw uh, a spanner in the works here. If I could have one position, and this isn't standard, I have... A neck-on switch. Oh, i still get my iMac. I'll just go back this way. Got split switch. Yeah, it's all backwards. There,
2: there So, it you, can con-
0: so, so I- you can
1: combine the back and the necks. say? Yeah.
0: So I could be right. on the bridge pickup and then kick in the neck I had, pickup.
1: I originally had this wired, so there was a blend knob like that's the one other master way to tone yep. and a blend knob, which would blend the front and back together. But I just never found a use for it, to be honest. It's that's uh, the
0: rhythm sound that I've been chasing for years. And it wasn't until I got a telecaster and, and use that middle position that I went, yeah, that's what I've been searching for. Uh, so te- if te- I could have te- one,
1: tellies are incredible beasts, you know, like, cause I, uh, got an ESP telly, which is still here. It's still hanging on the wall there. I've changed the color and the neck and it's got one of those sir necks on it. But, uh, I played that for years. I did my whole Big Sky album with it and played live with it for a long time with eleven to fifty twos on it. So it was a it was a tough beast to wow. manage. But and what yeah, I'm, back to 10, I'm back to ten to fifty two now. Okay. I just I, I think if I if I was touring a lot and playing a lot, I'd get match fit enough to put the elevens back on. Okay. But um but you know, there are things you can do with lighter strings that you just can't do with the heavy ones. It's just they just that's just how it is, you know.
0: I tried eights. And, um, I tried eights for the first time recently because my hands were playing up. Yeah. And it was amazing. I didn't have any of that loss in tone that everyone told me would be there. When I played my big open chords, I just had to be a little bit more careful of, of how I hit it. Yeah. But it took away any fight and anything I could think, I could play. And You know, um, well, TJ went
1: to Alan Holdsworth's house with uh, Scott Henderson many years ago. Um, in fact, the very, first version, the very first song TJ and I recorded, the lead guitars we tracked using uh, the prototype box that Alan built for a thing called the harness, which was a box you, like a load box you put in between a Marshall and a speaker cabinet. So that's, that's what he brought back from Alan's place. But when he got out there, Alan, you know, just chatting to him about this stuff, and he realized Alan was using 8 to 36 on his guitars, very, very light strings. And TJ tried him out for a while with his tapping, and he pulled massive sounds out of it. And the conclusion we came to was the lighter the strings and the lighter the attack, the bigger the sound. Yep. Whereas the bigger the string, the heavier the heavier the attack, the bigger the sound. Now, Stuart Fraser could play 12 to 58 in standard tuning and play them like I was playing a set of 10s. And... They were they were amazing. Like he was just he got he got the idea from uh, Mark Lazott from Diesel. Yep. Mark uses massive strings, and I think Danny Spencer's uses 12s. Like a lot of guys I know, big strings, you know. And and man, props, you know. I'd be in hospital if I tried to play that stuff. Absolutely, you know, so, absolutely. So I, I just can't do it, you know. And um, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's an interesting journey, the string gauge thing, yep. you know. But you've got to just what are you trying to do? How are you trying to do it? And what are you capable of doing without hurting yourself? Like I remember a young guy came to me at MI and uh, and he'd gone from playing nines to thirteens overnight because he watched the Stevie Ray Vaughan video and he ended up uh, <coughs> a month later he had his arm in a swing. Mm. <coughs> so, I mean, you know. The Stevie Ray Vaughan effect.
0: There was a video by Rick Beato recently. Um, if people don't know him, he's a great YouTuber. Very, very good content from Rick.
1: Yeah, it's great. Um,
0: and he was saying that he was talking to Dave Friedman about uh, a certain tone that he wasn't able to get in drop tuning or something. And Dave said to him, using the wrong gauge string, you need light strings for that. And he said, surely not, and tried it. <coughs> and um, they had some tone comparisons of it all. And yeah, the lighter strings sounded better. So I said I went down to the eights. I think I'm going to step back up to about a nine for now and just see how that goes Without now that I don't yeah. have any issues. Um, could be the way to go. Picks. Well,
1: yeah, I even do the half gauges. So, you know,
0: you I, did try, the I did try 9.5 for a little while, and that was still a little bit too much just with some of the RSI that I had in here, but I'm good now. So i going to try nines again.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a very personal. It's a very personal thing. What do you? I often looked at the country players. How beautiful their left hand movement was. It was so delicate, you know. Like a really, they all seem to have it. Like it's just beautiful. they're like they don't strangle the strings or anything like that. They're very very deliberate. And I thought they're probably using light strings because of the bends. You know, they want to do all those. Yeah. You know, I, I uh, Steve Travado, who was the country teacher at MI for a long time. He uh, was doing a a play-along book with a CD, and I was sitting at home one day in L.A., and TJ rang me up because TJ was engineering it for him, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, nothing. He said, can you come down to the studio and play some slides? Steve needs a slide solo. So I came down to Cherokee Studios, and Steve said, yeah, I want to have a slide solo on this CD. So if you wouldn't mind doing it, that'd be great. And I said, yeah, I'd love to. So I did my shtick, you know. He said, that was great. Thanks very much. And I said, so what's this all about? And he said, oh, I'm uh, doing a whole country play-along book. I've got Jerry Donahue from the Helicasters and Albert Lee coming in tomorrow. And I said, I will be coming in tomorrow, just quietly, you know. So I came back the next day and I got to sit right next to Jerry Donahue and uh, and Albert Lee and watch them solo wow. right there. Yeah. And Jerry Donahue, not to be confused with Jerry Douglas, the Dobro player, this is yep. Jerry Donahue of... Some of the bending stuff that guy could do was just ridiculous. You know, just, I mean, three strings going in different directions all at the same time. And, yep. and yeah, he was using very light strings. And, and uh, I'm convinced that's it. They use the light strings because of those possibilities, the way they can bend different intervals, the way they'll react differently, you know. Yep. A set of nines or eights will react very differently if you bend two at the same time as opposed to, you know, twelves or even tens. So, Absolutely. Got to be a reason. And Albert Lee, let me just say, like, I mean, he he did three takes of a solo that was at least two minutes long, rapid tempo, and every three, ta- every one of those takes was perfect. I just went, how are you going to choose which one you're going to use? You should have just had him do one because you'll never pick him. Wow. Most lovely guy in the world is just like sitting there going, could someone put some money in the meter for me? And I was like,
2: oh god. <laughs> Great.
1: TJ not believe it. He said, he's English. He said, I expect them to come in going, can I, yeah, y'all yeah, doing? You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's oh, man, Albert Lee's English.
0: So yeah. you said about sitting in the room with them. Do you know the, the guitar player, Tom Quayle?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I don't know him personally, but yeah. I do know of him. Yeah.
0: So when I was in Germany last year, uh, I had some studio time at the, the event and um, it was Dave Friedman suggested to me. He said, Hey, let's have a guitar battle between Semi Bowler and uh, Tom Quayle. And, I sat there with, with Tom as he's playing, and he plays in a dif- in a funny tuning. Did you know that? He tunes Fourth, yeah. all fourths, right? And he's sitting beside me, and I'm talking to him, and he's warming up. And to hear the sound of his fingers slapping the stainless steel frets just as he's warming yeah, up. Yeah,
1: yeah. Pretty powerful, isn't it? Yeah, he's got a left hander. Whoa. His, uh, the legit- legitimacy of his left hand is, is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I have a video on my YouTube channel of... Uh, him letting me play his guitar and him giving me a bit of a lesson on on the uh, the tuning he uses and yeah you can hear it i i, I hold the camera up and you see his, to his right hand then you see his left hand and just the sound coming out of there. Incredible. Well i mean
1: yeah, I've, I've seen clips of Tom picking and he's obviously an incredible picker but um i think he could just play all left hand and him yep. even need it, you know yeah it's it's pretty pretty remarkable.
0: I've one last subject i want to touch on before um we've hit that three hour mark mate jeez i told you it goes yeah tone wood when it comes to guitars do you believe that the wood the guitars made out of affects the tone or do you think a pickup is a pickup it picks up string vibration
1: no it's got it's got to matter but that that information comes from people more informed than me and once again Holdsworth. this was back in the 80s i was reading an interview and this is when everyone's going the heavier the better they're building guitars out of brass it's getting to the point of ridiculous Heavy, heavy, heavy. That's where the sustain is, heavy, you know. And Alan's like, no, no, you're wrong. No, nah. light of the body, light bodies, ash, older. He said, I even tried a guitar made out of balsa wood, but that was too light. That was ridiculous. Yeah, right. And the other, the other thing Alan said, they said, why don't you use a Floyd Rose because you, you use the whammy bar a lot. And he said, because the strings don't travel through the block. He said, the, the block is where the resonance comes from. That way it resonates through the body. That guy, man, he was just so switched on to things. No one was talking about this back then. Yep. No one was talking about light guitar wood and Alan just straight out of the blue. No, no, it's got to be light. You know, the first guy to put a humbucker in a Strat before Eddie Van Halen. I'm sure Eddie had the same idea, but Alan did it, you know. He's so disappointed when he said he had this, this Strat that he built. must have been one of the guitars he was using with UK or someone. He said I sold it to a guy, and he just went and put the single coils back into it. He said he just totally missed the potential of that guitar, and and uh, yeah, what a what a what a genius, you know. But yeah, Alan was the guy saying that. So no, I, I like I said, I I always defer to people that are much more knowledgeable than me. I've never had the luxury of trying different woods, you know. Mm. I just hey, I've got a guitar, and I'm lucky, you know. <laughs> so whatever it's made out of, I just hey, thankfully it's here, you know. Yep. But I'm not that guy that, that will spend my fortune on amps and mics and strings and things. I, I can't afford to experiment. I'm not just not that rich. So.
0: It, it's funny. Uh, I had somebody approach me a couple of years ago who had developed a brass block for the Floyd Rose um, and wanted me to do a comparison. And I said, mate, you come here and you pull the bloody guitar apart and put it all in, you know, to do the, the AB by all means. I don't want to know about that. And we did, and we recorded. Direct into the computer just to get, you know, check out all the waveforms and listen. Yeah. And there was no difference in sustain between a standard and the brass, but there was a big difference in tone just on, on the block of the yeah. four rows. Yeah. So to Beaver. do that AB was like, hang on, that's not what we were expecting. But I'll, I'll, it just had that top end zing was gone. It was a lot warmer.
1: Well, I never underestimate what people are capable of hearing that I'm not. And I also and also, just where their research is and where you may not understand it. When I first heard about Eric Johnson talking about the old, is it carbon batteries versus alkaline? Something that,
0: like that he was going when, on.
1: when he talked about that, I thought, oh, come on, what are you going on about? But then later on, a, good, a mate of mine named John Ziegler explained battery sag to me. And he said, no, you don't understand. He said, those old batteries, he said the carbon batteries, he said they put out more power. But as they fade, they will change the sound of your pedal. That's called battery sag. Then I remembered reading a Dwayne Ormond interview where he said he had this fuzz pedal he used with the Orman brothers, and he had to put a battery in it and leave it plugged in for a certain amount of time. And then it was he knew he'd get the whole gig out of it. But it was after the battery had drained for a certain amount of time it had the right sound.
2: Wow.
1: It changed the sound of the pedal. Whereas someone told me that um, – Duracells and alkaline batteries put out less voltage but more consistently for a longer period of time So I went well there you go. I I didn't you know, I was I was ill-informed I I made an assumption and I didn't have all the information to to base that assumption on so Yeah, I'm always ready to to listen to someone plead their case like I walked through the halls of MI one day And I heard Scott's playing and I knew it straight. I went that's only the one and only Scott Henderson. Yep and here's Scott in one of the uh, larger rooms with his bunch of disciples around him, well, me being one of them, yep. and he's got his entire rig set up, and I went in and said, what's going on? And he said, I'm A-B-ing guitar cables. And I went, what? And he said, yeah, I've got a Belden cable and a something else cable, and he was switching between the two, and I swear for a split second I heard a difference, and then I lost it, yep. and Enough, but he could hear it you really got to focus
0: on, on things like that I, I know I compared converters for recording uh, oh, about 10 years ago I had yeah just a cheap M audio interface and I had an Apogee and I sat there A being listening to music and it was a good 10 minutes because you, you're focusing on different things am I hearing any difference in the low end any the crack in the mid range blah 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 and after 10 minutes I went oh, the decay of the cymbals I'm yeah. starting to hear that. If that took me 10 minutes of critical listening to pick that, is it really worth just, worrying about?
1: Well, you know, it's just you can't – but you can't deny – look at look at the way Jacob Collier hears music, you know. I don't know or who that is. You know, that young guy that's just – just look him up. I will. And uh, look, Rick Beato's son. Have you, yeah, have you seen, the, the freaky-deaky
0: freaky perfect pitch, yeah.
1: Wow, yeah, Dylan, I think his name. Yeah, that's right. Man, yep. that is just, you know, what a trip.
0: Yep.
2: I mean,
1: the way he would hear, I would just hear a chord, but the way he would hear it, you know,
2: yep.
1: or anyone with a perception like that connected to the musical knowledge to understand it and uh, the possibilities they would hear. And, and you know, you just, I, I I just have to always say I'm, the jury's out because just because I can't hear it doesn't mean it's not there. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like. Love to hear. I'd love to hear like my dogs one day, just to see what's really happening out there that I don't know about. Absolutely,
2: yeah. absolutely. Yeah.
1: yeah, you've got to keep your mind open.
0: Yeah, so. yeah. Brett, I, I think we should wrap things up. But mate, I, like you said earlier, you could talk for hours about this kind of stuff. So I'd love to have you back on sometime if you're up for it.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I've got your email there, mate, and your phone number, so I'll I'll, I'll keep in touch. Um, but it's been a pleasure talking to you. And it's
1: been a great, wave, Yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, sure. yeah.
0: It's it's not that scary once you get past the whole live thing. It did freak me out for maybe the first twenty five episodes, and then I had a moment, as I said, where
1: you're on a roll now, Rick. I mean, this is great. I mean, uh, you know, I could imagine countless other players that would love to have a chat. So well, I'll try and I'll try and send them your way, mate.
0: I'll have a chat to you after we 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 uh, end this broadcast and and. Uh, See if you can recommend anybody for me, but Oops. yeah, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in all that time. Thank you to Brett for for taking the time out, and um, please remember like, subscribe, all that kind of stuff. I don't have that many subscribers considering the content that I'm putting out right now, and uh that's tonight- how you
1: get them. Man.
0: That's how you get them. Yep, I'm actually going to go now that I've got my new laptop. There's a music store, Gold Coast Music on the Gold Coast here have said, mate, you want to come in and demo any of this stuff? So I'm going to see if they've got all the Fender Strat uh, standard strats that are out now. I'm going to do a bit of a comparison between all those. I think that'll be make for some good content. Um, But please like, subscribe, share, all that kind of thing. Help get the word out because I've had some great guests. I've got some more coming up just this week alone. We've got Bruce Ignater. I've got my friend, Vladimir, from Catpick Studios, who's just a a smaller YouTuber like me. We're going to talk about being a smaller YouTuber. And then I have um, Doug Rappaport. Brett, have you heard Doug Rappaport? Yeah, yeah.
1: Doug plays with uh, Edgar Winter, Edgar
0: Winter, that's right, mate. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, great player. Yeah, yeah. Say the least.
0: Oh, so, yeah, I was was very stoked that that he said he'd take the time. I've got Erwin Thomas in the works. I've got... Oh, I'm going to get Jack the Bear, the mastering guy, because he is not only great with the mastering, mastering music, but mastering life. He's a great motivational speaker. Man, i got quite a few people lined up. So please, folks, like, subscribe, share, all that kind of stuff. Brett, thank you again, mate. I'm going to hit the button right now. Oh, thank you. Thanks, folks. See ya.